If for some reason you are unable to continue to access this set of podcasts on your current podcast platform or app, you can go to georgenassar.com, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-N-A-S-S-A-R.com, and click on the podcast link, and the entire podcast is right there. And you can listen to and download it from there. Thank you. There are those who believe that the American criminal justice system is broken. They believe it is broken from the arresting officers all the way up to the prison and jail administration. And of course also includes the judicial branch. I guess for me, all of this started back when I was still living with the Baloos, um, B-E-L-L-E-W, uh, nice family, um, had 14, <laughs> 14 foster kids, and the only ones who got attention were basically the ones who caused trouble, and that wasn't me, that was not me, um, I was exactly the extreme opposite of that, so basically I got neglected, you know, nobody was there. To, you know throw an arm over my shoulder and say hey kid let's you know let's go somewhere let's you know learn how to throw a ball or this or that or whatever which is pretty much the bane of all of my foster care experiences because no one ever taught me anything about sports uh you know how to play or any of, uh, any of what you're watching on television or any of that but okay anyway so I, during this time i uh i went i was just a stone's throw from Forest Park, and I, I was there just wandering around, just doing nothing, doing, you know, because I didn't really have, have a lot of friends, um, but I was over by the courts, the, the tennis courts, and there's a set of, there's two, two distinct sets of courts, one is asphalt or concrete, whatever it is they use, um, and which is very low maintenance, and the other one were the clay courts which you know they use clay and unfortunately those things need to be maintained very very religiously if it rains you got to do so much and in the spring after the snow is gone you have to do a whole bunch of stuff to prepare them and to do that and then general maintenance uh uh data day-to-day maintenance is if the courts start cracking and stuff of course this affects where the ball goes um so it all has to be smoothed out it has to be wet first it has to be sprinkled and water and then it needs to be uh, rolled out so anyway so i was there and i was um i noticed this old guy he was at the uh on the other side of the clay courts um working on the, the backboard um, where you can practice you know you can play squash or you can practice um your your skills at uh tennis Anyway, it was a hot day, and he was up there, and I felt bad for him, so I went over and introduced myself and asked him if I could help, but he said, sure, and so I was helping him, and this was the start of a great relationship, 
because uh, first of all, I should say he was really flabbergasted at the fact that this this you know young teenager would actually come and, and offer to help for nothing, and uh, so he offered me a job. It wasn't going to be a high-paying job. It wouldn't be that, but you know, it was a few bucks in my pocket. You know, ten, twenty dollars, and all he wanted me to do was just basically take care of the the clay courts in that I would you know if they needed to be wet down if it was too dry I would wet them down then I would um, wait a little while get this get the little uh, gas powered uh, roller out there and I would and that was a great that was a that was a hoot just being able to drive that thing was awesome um, and then roll the courts you know pack it down by rolling them down and then doing other miscellaneous things and like I said he was paying me and so this went on for a little while uh, my, my foster mother uh, Dorothy did get a little suspicious and she asked me if you know if he was hurting me or touching me or anything like that and I was like no 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 I says he's more like a, a father or a grandfather figure to me and none of that happened um, but so Char Charlie uh, started taking me out uh, you know on little excursions we went to Mount Tom uh, ski uh, area of course it's in the summer uh, so there's no skiing but it's just beautiful up there on that mountain it's just gorgeous especially in the, in, the, in the fall with the fall foliage. Um, and, he, and it was just great, you know. And then one day he told me, because, you know, I was, I was there whenever I said I was going to be there, you know, whenever I had to be there to do my work, I was there. And um, so he, he had asked me, he said, well, listen, what I'd like to do for you is open up a bank account, uh, a joint bank account, and for every, you know, every dollar that you, that you make, whether you're making it here or if you got another job, we can put it in in that bank account, and he would double it. You know, he would he would he would you know add to he would double whatever I had, and so I did, and he did. And again, I know it may seem like oh, well, it's a joint account; he can take your money. Trust me, this old guy had, <laughs> had enough money; he did not need to be taking mine. He was actually trying to help me because I had talked to him and you know, discuss the fact of my upbringing and the sense of the foster care system and that. And he just, he felt, you know, tugged on his heartstrings and he felt, uh, he felt very, uh, you know, very moved by it. So this went on for, you know, pretty much until I moved out of that foster home. Um, but the reason I'm bringing up Charlie right now uh, is because of, of what I'm about to say next. Okay, so I invited uh, Richard, the alleged victim in my case, over to uh, where I was living, which of course I wasn't living with my mother anymore. I might have wanted to mention that if I hadn't. We had a big blowout, and so yeah, uh, so um, she kicked me out, um, or I left. I think it was that I left. But anyway, the point is she lived in Chicopee. So the rest of my, a uh, couple of my siblings and my stepfather lived in Springfield. So I went to move in with them. And this was Biltmore Street, uh, just just down the street from Forest Park. And uh, so everything was going good there. And and then um, you know a few weeks went by, and then it was my birthday. It was my 19th birthday. And so I, I contacted Richard's uh, mom, and I said, "Do you think you know Richard could come down?" And I you know I want to we'll go to the movies and stuff like that. See, I really didn't have many of friends my own age. Um, I was basically emotionally stunted. Mentally, I was pretty much more advanced than most people I knew around me, which was weird for a child because, you know, for my age now, then 
Yeah, it's, except it's expected, but back then, not so much. In truth, pretty much all my life, uh, not, not now, but all of my childhood, um, I would hang around with kids that were younger than me because emotionally and mentally, I could relate to them better. I mean, granted, mentally, I was pretty much above most kids my age. Um, but certainly, my emotions were certainly definitely um, diminished. And uh, so I could only relate to kids that were younger than me. Well, when you're a kid, nobody thinks about that because you're only a few years between you. Um, and you're basically harmless. But as you get older, it becomes a little more dicey, which is what this did. Uh, so I wanted to talk about a little, a little bit about the history of, you know, why would I take a, uh, why would I take a, um, you know, a 13-year-old boy under my wing and try to help him out? Well, there was this guy named Charles DeBarger. Uh, I'm sure he's passed by now. He was old then. And when I was in my early teens, uh, or mid to early teens, I, you know, I saw him working on the, the backboard, uh, the squash uh, backboard. And uh, so I went over there, I introduced myself, and I asked if he needed some help. And he's like, sure. And he was rather flabbergasted that, you know, a kid my age would actually ask to help, you know. So I did. And uh, I ended up getting, he ended up giving me a, a little job of, of maintaining, helping to maintain the clay courts. Uh, clay courts are different from you know, hardtop courts in that the hardtop courts are low maintenance and clay is very high maintenance. If it rains, then you've got to get in there with the, with, yeah, you know, once it dries a certain amount, you've got to get in there with the, with the roller, with the gas-powered roller to clean it up and fix it up and stuff like that. But when you play on clay courts, when you play tennis on clay courts, it is believed that it, by, you know, by pretty much most most people uh, in that profession or who play for, for fun, that clay courts are much, much more advantageous. But for a while there, the, uh, the park department was trying to get rid of the clay courts and just pave them over and, you know, make them lower maintenance. So Charlie was the guy who was spearheading it spearheading the effort to keep the clay courts open he and several others uh, so yeah so he gave me a job and after a while of me you know being there on time and things like that uh, he decided that it might be advantageous to me uh, to put my money in the bank um, it's not like he was paying me a lot of money but here was the thing he said if you will open up a joint account that way We'll put money, in, your, your, your money in there, whatever you want to put in there. And then he said, I'll match it. So whatever you put in there, dollar for dollar, I'll match it. And then down the road a bit, he um, actually said, you know, asked me if I knew anything about the stock market. And I was like, no. And so he said, well, he explained a few things to me. And then he said, I'm going to take a portion, if with your permission, a portion of the money out of the bank, um, maybe half or a little, little less than that and I'm going to invest it for you so that you'll have you can start a, an investment portfolio it'll be small at first uh no, you know because you know, the bigger ones cost more bigger stocks more expensive but um I mean I thought this was great and and so we did that we, we totally did that and um so cutting back now to Richard 
This was the reason and inspiration for me trying to take that troubled little kid under my wing, even though I couldn't solve my own problems. Uh, but this was my nature to help to help people, and uh, this is the reason why. That was the inspiration. Uh, so if you're, you know, that, that answers the question that people would have probably been asking is. If you're 18 years old, why in the world would you want to be hanging around with a kid that young? Well, I've just explained exactly why, and I've just explained what the inspiration was to try to help him. And it was very admirable. You know, it was nothing underhanded or illicit or anything like that. So yeah, so I had called his mom, asked if he could come over. She said yes. And so on my, uh, my birthday, my 19th birthday, uh, he came down on bu on the bus, but he had brought he brought my ex girlfriend's uh, seven year old or six year old with him, and I had to have them pick him up and bring him back because I didn't have enough money uh, to to go to the movies and and that you know I didn't have the mo money for three people. And like I said, um, the the work that I, that I had been doing for for Charlie didn't really pay very well. And I wasn't doing it by this time. I actually had stopped working the minute I stopped being at the foster home that I was at, which was near the park. So that ended that. And then, you know, he basically gave me the money that was in the account and closed the account. Um, but he left the, the stock one open. But then at some point in time, that was moot too because I ended up leaving that foster home and then we ended up losing contact with each other. So I'm not sure whatever happened to that. I assume he probably assimilated it into into his portfolio because his name was on the on it, so he could transfer it to whatever he wanted to transfer. Um, but so so yeah so okay so Richard and I are there and and uh, time came up to go to the movies and he decided he didn't want to go. So I'm like okay well why don't we do what, what the other thing I said we could do and that was to go into the uh, and go to my campsite, which I had I'd set up several, like, almost a week and a half earlier, because I'd go down there. Sometimes I'd sleep some overnight, and other times I'd just sit there and practice doing my traps and snares, and I'd practice my martial arts and stuff like that. Um, I might want to add, I might want to say, if I haven't said it before in, in, in another uh, in another uh, episode that um, at some point when I was living with my mom in Chicopee, I had started going to uh, the uh, Explorer, Stop, Explorer Scouts meetings, and I became an Explorer Scout. Now, Explorer Scouts are pretty much an extension of the Boy Scouts of America, except that usually when a Boy Scout gets a certain age, they just join the Eagle Scouts. So there was the option of Eagle or us, you know, and mostly they basically told the kids, you know, no, you don't want to be an explorer scout, blah, blah, blah. They just didn't like our particular post and what we what we did. We were um, a, a wilderness survival, uh, first aid, and martial arts. Well, those were the three things that were taught in, in the group that I was in, and uh, they frowned upon it a little. But uh, I even actually got Richard... Uh, interested in, and had taken him to a couple of meetings for Boy Scouts because they met at the same place and at the same time as our Explorer Scouts. And the funny thing was, as we were going home, because we were walking um, back to Chicopee, because this was in West Springfield, um, as, we, as we were going home, 
weirdest thing. You know, there was there were certain kids that were there that were pretty rambunctious and stuff like that, like to cause trouble. And I told him, I says, look, this, you know, this kid's a little effer. Is what I said, not heifer, effer. You know, I, I said, uh, I'm just saying, not saying the word. Try not to swear in these in these things. Um, but but uh, yeah, so I said, you know, he's a little effer. And Richard turns to me as we're walking. He goes, I hope so. Again. What I may not have mentioned is Richard was gay. Um, wasn't out of the closet gay, but everybody pretty much knew that he was gay as far as my, you know, my family and uh, my ex-girlfriend's family and, uh, and um, his mom. They all knew, but they, we all just pretty much ignored it. So, okay, that's, that's that. So anyway, so we went to the woods. We went to the thing. We, everything we were doing, everything, you know, I said, doing the traps and snares taught him how to light a fire with sticks and this and that or you know how to light one with one match if that's all you had and everything was going fine um now i'm going to pause here just for a moment because there's something i need to to explain in order for you to fully understand uh the situation there's something i need to say right now before i continue with that so let's put a a pause on that one when I was very young uh, like most kids who are six seven eight nine years old or something like that I had an imaginary friend um, and it was you know just like anybody other any other kid but as I started to grow up uh, something happened and not happened to me but something happened within me that uh, it changed from an imaginary friend to an actual personality um, and it just grew like that and it was at that point it was a singular entity but it was certainly not me and it was you know a multiple personality kind of situation developed um, as I had gotten older that was split up into four different entities and I'll explain to you their names and how it came about it's a little embarrassing, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's relevant to what I was talking about uh, when we were doing the traps and snares and stuff. So, the first entity uh, was Pen Pendulum, and Pendulum, I got his name because uh, a pendant, you know, is a necklace. My mom had, my you know, biological mother had give, bought me a Star Wars pendant, and I didn't know the word pendant at the time. I didn't know what it meant I didn't know what that was called so I thought it was called a pendulum uh, which I know it sounds like pendulum but no anyway so pendulum what that that particular uh, uh, person you know within me that particular personality uh, was my friend that's was his capacity then there was um, off which is O-T-T-H at the time Rocky 3 had come out and uh, I really, I really enjoyed it. And so I was trying to figure out a name for that one because he was my protector. If I was ever in a situation where I were, it was an altercation, he would take over and deal with the situation. So I thought of Rocky Three, and then I was said, "Well, why don't I just go for one?" For, speaking of, you know, the the O is is one, uh, T is two. And the TH is three, basically rock. That means that's code for Rocky Three. Um, so it basically is three. 
Anyway, then there was Psycho, which was the psychiatrist. I just called him Psycho for short. <laughs> Crazy, right? Um, but if I ever had a problem that I was trying to understand something, uh, trying to relate to something, whether it was my peers, my foster parents, the other kids in the home or whatever, he would come forward and take care of that. And the last one was teacher. And teacher was the one who helped me with my schoolwork, my homework, uh, anything I had to do, anything that basically had to do with school, uh, he would help me with that. Now each one of these entities could t come forward all by themselves. They don't have to ask me. Not that, it's not that I, I wanted them to or not. It didn't matter. That's the nature of multiple personalities is that when something is within their ballpark, especially when you have multiples, um, they just take over. Whenever the situation arises, they just take over. And I, I would black out. I wouldn't, I'd lose time. I wouldn't know what happened during that time period or anything like that. And uh, I never told anybody about this because I didn't want them to think I was absolutely off my rocker, which technically if you've got, <laughs> you've got these people living inside you, then yeah, you are off your rocker. <laughs> it's not a question. <laughs> But anyway, okay. Um, ultimately, what ended up happening was it got too much for me because I could hear them talking in my head. Okay, it was literally voices in my head. And it got really old, not really fast, but relatively fast. I realized that I can't, I can't keep up with this, not to mention they're flipping the switch on me every now and then, but more often because there's four of them. In other words, they're taking over different aspects of my life without my permission and uh, and so you know I, I needed to take some kind of an action and I didn't know what to do it and then I thought about it and I says well if there's only one if there's some way that there could only be one it would make it a lot easier so what I did was I figured out a meditation technique uh, that you could use to access your, your subconscious. Uh, I picked up a book at the library, I believe. And uh, so I started doing the practice, you know, of practicing it until I could get to the point where I could actually do that without actually falling asleep. Hypnosis is easy when it's somebody outside of you doing it, you know, because, you know, they're directing you. But when you have to direct yourself, it's a long and arduous, pro and, yeah, an arduous process. Um, but I managed to figure out how to do it. And then I presented it. And nobody was really particularly thrilled about it, but I said, this is what's gonna happen, period. So, and they're all, of course, jockeying now. Well, who's gonna be the one? Who's gonna be the one? None of you. You're all gonna be part of the same one, and I'm not even naming them after any of you. So I said, don't even ask. The name I came up with, well, during the time, this time, uh, the, the, there was a strike, a writer's strike, on, of the staff who wrote for a soap opera called General Hospital. And so they deviated from the normal normal fare uh, of, of soap operas into this James Bond kind of thing. And it made that, made, it made General Hospital like the, at the, at the front of their pack as far as soap opera goes. Um, it was an amazing storyline. And I'm not gonna get into it right now, but if you type in, I don't know, something like Nikos Cassidyne or Luke and Laura or the Ice Princess 
any of those things into your YouTube search, you'll probably come up with a lot of videos from that. I mean, I know because I've done it because I loved that. I loved that. That I used to couldn't. I, here I was. I don't know, maybe 13 years old. I'd run home from school as fast as I could just to just to be able to watch it because it started at three, and I wanted to keep up with whatever crazy James Bond kind of stuff was going on. Uh, one of the storylines was uh, was about was the bad guy was named David Gray, and um, what he had done, he was created a hologram of these of these treasures, and uh, the treasures were from, supposedly from Alexander the Great, uh, and that was when the name Iskandar came up, and I thought Iskandar was a really cool name. Uh, no, I didn't end up using it, but it led me to look it up. And I found out that it meant that it was another name for Alexander, as in Alexander the Great. So, you know, I don't need to get any deeper into the storyline. All I know is he created the hologram of these, of these, you know, items that he was going to steal. And he steals them, activates the hologram, and nobody knows the difference, of course. He got foiled, but the, uh, but the point is, so the name that I came up with was Alex, because I, I just loved the name Alex once... You know, once I learned that it was, you know, Alexander the Great, Iskandar, you know, I named him Alex. But I added a little <laughs> my own thing to the back of it, which made no sense at all, but I did. So I added Transvecchi. So I, this one was going to be named Alexander Transvecchi. Alex for short. Quite frankly, I never used the rest of it beyond when I thought of it. It was always Alex. So I did the meditation technique, and I, I was able... To actually successfully, or at least I thought uh, it was successful, uh, successfully merge them into one, and that was going to be Alex. So now Alex could help me with everything. If I needed, uh, you know, whatever I needed, all of the things that I said before that each one of the four were handling, Alex was now handling. Okay, so that establishes that, and here's the reason why. So, what you need to know. I need to reiterate, just as the as all four would do, Alex had the power to take over at any point in time that it seemed warranted to him. If I was pushed too far um, in any way, he would take over and do whatever, and I would just, you know, go into a quiet place. I guess I'm not exactly sure because I don't. There's not like there was. A, it's not like I was physically anywhere, um, or even mentally anywhere that was recognizable so I, I, whenever I came to after he did whatever he did I was always oblivious and I had to take his word that that it was necessary and so I did I always did uh, it annoyed me sometimes because you know when you're in the middle of a crowded room of people or in some place where there are other people and all of a sudden he flips the switch because of perceived danger um, his personality is not my personality. So clearly people knew there was something wrong with me. Uh, but, you know, however I was talking was just not me. And the things I was doing was just not me. And then I'd be asked about it a lot of times later. We, when we were at that party or we were over this guy's house or whatever, whatever, what were you talking about when you were talking about blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, you know what? Honestly, I was just in a daze at that time. So... I don't remember. I come up with some stupid excuse, because what am I going to say? The truth? <laughs> Alright, so now that we've established that, here's the relevance. So, we were in the park, Richard and I, 
and we're, you know, we did the traps and stairs, we did the fire thing, and then all I remember is him starting to, he started to say something. I don't I even, I don't even know exactly what it is. I can just, I just know he started to say something to me. And the next thing I know, I'm in the tent, because I had a little, you know, like I said, I used to camp out there for, you know, weeks and stuff like that. I was in the tent, and uh, as embarrassing it is, is, is to say this, my pants were unbuckled, and I didn't understand any of that, and I'm coming too now, out of this, out of this, you know, him taking over, and I didn't realize that he had just taken over, and so I'm, I'm, I'm now me, and I'm like, what the heck happened, and I could hear Richard out, outside, you know, breaking um, twigs or something like that for a fire or whatever he was doing and um, then Alex you know I realized that oh yeah okay you took over why and he wouldn't tell me and I'm like why now this doesn't make any sense I'm out here doing what I love to do <laughs> and trying to help someone else and why the heck would you need to do that what threat could there possibly have been yeah well I'd find out later what the threat was, unfortunately, too little, too late. But he did take over, and whatever happened, happened. I buckled up, came out, and I thought to ask Richard, but then I was like, I didn't know what the hell to ask. And how do I explain it? He didn't know anything about Alex, nobody did. So how do you try to explain something like that? Yeah, you really can't, so I just didn't bother saying anything to him. Uh, so, so we ended up ending that, you know, we did whatever else we had to do, and then we went back to the house, and I told him, oh, I've got to, you know, we've got to go to the, back to, uh, we got to go, you know, over to where the, where the bus stop is, because there's a phone there, and to call your mom up, and he, because... I don't know why, but he wanted to stay. He didn't want to go home. Then he actually started crying because he didn't want to go home. I didn't, I didn't understand why he didn't want to go home, but he didn't want to leave. So I told him, I said, well, well let's go call your mom, find out. And we did, and she said, no, he, he's got to come home now. Um, you know, I said, okay, we'll be on the next bus, or he'll, you know, he'll be on the next bus. So we're standing there, and I'm sitting my, with my back on the wall facing where the direction of the, where the bus would come in from. And I told him, you know, keep an eye out and zoom right there. The bus just went by. And I'm like, I told you to, to tell me when the bus was coming. So now that was the last bus. So he had to call his mom again and they had to pick him up. And, and because of their, for their inconvenience, I said, you know what, look, why don't I go with you to um, Dunkin' Donuts where I work and you guys can get some free stuff. And they did and we did. And uh, they dropped me off there, they left me there, and they went home, and I went back to, to uh, where I live. And uh, so I thought it was a pretty successful day, you know, and um, I you know, thought this, everything was great. So the next day, um, I, I think, I, I, think I, was, I went down to where I worked, I wasn't on, I wasn't working, but I went down to where I worked, 
at Dunkin' Donuts, and I was uh, to to say to talk to you know my couple of workers that were there, and their eyes were like, they're just like wide, and I, looking at me, and I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm looking around, thinking they're looking at something else, and they're one, and they couldn't. They, I could clearly say that they were trying to mouth something to me, but they couldn't say it out loud because there were people there. So I just nodded and told them, you know, gave them the nod to come out with me. So they both came outside and they go, oh my God, what did you do? I'm like, what do you mean, what did I do? What? what, what? They said, the Springfield detectives were here looking for you. I'm like, the detectives? What the hell would they be looking for me for? They're like, I don't know, they wouldn't tell us. We told them, you know, where, where you lived and, uh, you know, and that was it. That, that was, we, that we couldn't help them anymore. It's just... I says, all right, let me get back to the house, see what's going on. Now, my ex-girlfriend had bought me a leather coat. Don't ask me why, but it had all these zippers on it. So, being in mar- being into martial arts and stuff like that, I decided, you know, I had, you know, I'm a kid, I'm a kid, you know, so this is what teenagers do sometimes, if they're, especially if they're loners and they're all up into martial arts, is you buy yourself throwing stars and secret concealed weapons and stuff like that. So I had a lot of that on me. And so as I'm going down my street, I'm dropping things behind, behind trees on the tree belt. Because I'm like, if I'm about to get arrested for something, I don't want all this paraphernalia on me. Of course, trust me, it wouldn't have mattered with what was about to happen. So I got to the house, and then my, my brother Robert and my sister Terry are asking me, um, you know, what what happened the uh, Springfield detectives were just here and I'm like okay what did they say they said well they just wanted to talk to you I'm like okay did they say what about and they said nope they wouldn't tell us so I went actually coincidentally we didn't have a phone at the house so I actually went back <laughs> to that old foster home the Baloo's uh, where I had you know that you know where I'd gone into Forest Park and met Charlie DeBar- DeBarger and stuff like that they just lived down the street so I went there and I explained to them what happened. They said, well, okay, we'll let you use the phone, but don't, t- don't, they're not coming here. You know, tell them to go back to that house. We don't want them here. I'm like, no problem. I'm not trying to c- cause problems, and thank you for letting me use the phone. So I called them, and they basically said, yeah, we just want to talk to you. I said, well, I'm, I'm home. I'm going, I'm home now, um, you know, so, you know, I'll be there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay there. They said, okay, just stay there. So I hung up and walked back home and waited over an hour for these idiots. I mean, it's so urgent, so urgent. And I'm, my heart's beating out of my chest because I'm trying to rack my brain thinking, what the hell could I have done? I'm the good kid. <laughs> what did I do? You know, I mean, I'm the good guy. So they finally show up. They identify me and uh, ask me to you know, go to the car. My brother Robert's on the sitting on, he's, he's sitting on the front steps putting on his boots thinking he's going to be able to go with me because he wants to know what's going on. And they said, no, you, you can't come. And then once we got to the car, he grabbed my wrist, slaps on the cuffs, puts my hand behind my back, slaps the other one on, and says, gotcha. And I'm thinking to myself, are you a freaking idiot? <laughs> Not me, him. I'm like, the way he said it was as if we just had a, a, a car chase or a, a breathless run through the park when he, with him on, hot on my heels. And then he captures me and he says, gotcha. But it was like, gotcha what? Well, he knew what he meant. I didn't, but I'd find out. As soon as I was in the car, he immediately said that I was being arrested for the rape of Richard. 
I want to say the last name. And I was like, what? And it was interesting because when I was, there was a female uh, um, a detective in the car right next to me, he, and he was driving. And all I could think to myself was, get ready for the ride of your life. I knew this thing was going to be bad. I knew it was going to be bad. So they took me down to the Springfield Police Department, and I stayed there overnight. Of course, I took my stuff and my laces for my shoes and stuff like that. Can't have me hanging. <laughs> At least not yet. <laughs> no, but seriously. Um, so then after that, the next morning, I was chained to a bunch of other guys, thrown on a van, thrown into a van, or marched into a van, and then we went to, uh, to the, uh, the Hall of Justice. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, we're sitting in the pews waiting for the judge, you know, each, the judge to, you know, talk about what each one of us is there for and what, what the indictments are and what the bail's going to be and stuff like that. So I got, I got, it got to me, my, the, the, the uh, you know, guard, you know, poked me to stand up. So I stood up. The charges she read, I, I couldn't believe it. And it's probably a good thing that I didn't remember it for a long time again, because later, because I was just like, what the hell? And it was basically several counts of rape of a child by force, several counts of threat to murder, several counts of threatening with a dangerous weapon. The dangerous weapons, by the way, they were talking about were a lot of the, the ninja stuff that I had, the martial arts stuff that I had, which I never even, there was no such thing as, there was just no threat. If I showed him anything, it was like, oh, look at this cool thing, like kids do, you know? Oh, look at this cool thing I got. And it just so happened that I had purchased, months earlier, I had purchased a, uh, a rifle um, with a seven-shot clip, you know, underloading seven-shot clip. And I was proud of it. I had an FID card, so that wasn't a problem. And I showed that to Richard when I was, when he, you know, when he came. And my stepfather, uh, who I bonded with awesomely, my brothers had took no interest in his woodworking stuff, but he had all these woodworking tools and stuff like that and jigsaws in the basement. I took a, a very big interest in it. And so he took me down there and we would do things and bake things. And, you know, it was, it was awesome. Um, oh yeah, there was this one time when we were talking about him in the military because he, he served in World War II. And later on, he served at the White House as a White House guard, um, which was awesome. All of us kids got a certificate once we were old enough and uh, from the White House thanking him for his service. Um, but we were talking about that and he was telling, yeah, he learned, I was telling about how I learned. This is my stepfather we're talking about, just to make sure we're clear. And I was talking to him about, uh, you know, how good I was getting at throwing, throwing stars. He goes, he says, yeah, we learned not that, but we learned how to throw just about anything at an enemy and make it stick. I says, really? I said, can you show me? He says, yeah, let me go get a flathead screwdriver. I'm thinking he's gonna grab a knife, you know, you know, <laughs> from the kitchen. I didn't expect that. I'm like, is he crazy? Does he actually think he's gonna be able to, yeah, 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 right, whatever. So we're out there, we went to the backyard, he set up a board, and on his first throw, he nailed it. He threw a freaking unbalanced item that is not even meant to be thrown, like a throwing knife or even a regular knife. He stuck it in there. Pulled it out, did the same thing like two more times, I think it was. And I was like, wow, 
that's crazy. <laughs> so, they, so we had bonded. Um, so, you know, just pointing that out. All of that said, we bonded great, like I say. Um, but the significance it has to this is that for my birthday, the day before I was picked up, um, he had given me a world, uh, his authentic World War II machete, one that he had used, was on him, and that he had used many times. I don't know what for, but it's war, so you can imagine. Um, and I was so proud of that. I mean, he didn't give it to my, my older brother, he didn't give it to my other brother, and he didn't give it to my other brother, he gave it to me. And I think it was mainly because I showed an actual interest, you know, in what he was doing. And of course, you know, when Richard came over, I, I was excited about showing him what I got for my birthday, and I showed him the machete, in no, no threatening way. We were in the kitchen with everybody else, so it wasn't like I showed him the gun and showed him the machete in an empty house, because quite frankly, I worked, I don't think my sister was working, I know my brother was working, and my stepfather was retired. He used to be a truck driver, so there was always somebody in the house so there was someone at that point and again no th nothing threatening it was more like you know oh look what i got the rifle and the machete that they, i threatened him with those and i was like what the hell of course i'm i'm 19 years old i know nothing about law yet <laughs> they would regret it when i did <laughs> but we'll get to that uh anyway the point is so i didn't know anything about law and then I sat down, the next guy stood up and blah, blah, blah. Then we were all filed out to the bullpen. The shackles and everything were taken off. And I, my, my court-appointed attorney came over. And uh, Richard, I believe it was Richard, uh, Richard Gordon. It was either Richard Rubin or Richard Gordon. Uh, Richard Gordon ends up being my, my uh, attorney throughout the, the whole pretrial phase. But this was just for that. So whether it was him or the other guy, it doesn't matter. He just explained to me the, the seriousness of the charges, and I just said, I didn't do this. He's like, yeah, okay, well, the fact is, is evidence is saying different, yeah, victim, victim statement, the official version is saying different, and the most you can probably hope out of this is house of correction time. And I didn't even, even know what that term meant. So then he moved on to the next guy, and eventually we were all chained up again and put into a van and brought to... York Street Jail, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a hellhole that was built in the 19, or no, yeah, 19, oh no, back in the 1700s actually, um, 17 or 1800s, and uh, so I was put in West Block, because well, what I forgot to mention is that the judge gave me um, a $25,000 bail. I didn't have $2, let alone 25000 so I wasn't going anywhere. But because of the nature of the crime, I was placed into West Block, which was maximum security. And uh, so there, you know, I sat. Now, my, my, when I, every seven days, by law, they had to, they had to bring you, uh, they had to allow you to talk to your attorney. So they would round, us, round a bunch of us up, you know, whatever inmates needed to go do this, and load us in the van, we go back to the courthouse, go into the bullpen, uh, then our, the attorneys would come out and start talking to us. And in the beginning, my attorney talked to me like I think twice, and that was the end of it. I never saw him again until, well, 
I don't want to jump the gun here, so I'm not going to say when, but I wouldn't see him for like eight years. <laughs> Again, for eight years. But he did send an investigator to talk to me, which I thought was cool. At least I could tell somebody my side of the story, which I did. I gave my whole mental health history as well and everything else I could possibly think of. And she said, good, this is all good. It will, sh this should work in your favor. Never saw her again. So months and months go by, and it's almost a year now, and I'm getting scared because I'm like, what the heck's going to happen? <laughs> you know, I had several suicide attempts while I was in there, uh, and I just, you know, the only information I could glean was from other inmates, you know, where they call out or if you're in the showers or something like that. Now, I was, I was put on restrictive, uh, restrictive um, protective custody, so that basically meant I didn't go take a shower with the rest of them. I took a shower with the other people who were in my situation. But what I did glean was not very good. I mean, everybody seems to know what everybody else is in for. Um, and if they don't know, they all they have to do is ask somebody. So pretty much the whole block knew what I was there for and others similarly situated. And I was there with murderers and, and drug addicts and drug dealers and prostitutes, but these were all violent people. So that's why they were in West Block. So I got what I thought was enough information to help me understand things. And then I started thinking, you know, maybe if I talk to the detective, since nobody from my lawyer's side is talking to me, maybe if I talk to somebody from the detectives, um, they'll, you know, they'll understand, you know. Let me say this. Miranda writes... You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed to you by the state. Do you understand these rights as I have read them? Now, they did read the rights to me when I was in the car on the way to the, the, the police station. Um, but the reason I just mentioned the Miranda rights was because I want to drive home something to you. You know the part where it says anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law? Here's what they really mean, because this is really what happened. They mean that anything you say, whether it vindicates you or not, we're going to use it against you. Now here's an example of how that worked. Early on, months earlier, I had gotten a manila envelope. It was from the detectives and it was the official version. And I have to say I laughed hysterically when I read it. This is the victim's statement. And I know you're thinking, well, why would you be laughing? Well, because I didn't do that. I didn't do any of that. And I, and I knew I didn't do it. And I'm laughing my ass off because I'm like, this can't stay, this can't ride any minute now. They're gonna open these doors and, real, and, and send me home because how, how can that not happen? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Of course, again, I'm ignorant. Um, so then I talked to the detectives months later. And within a week, I get another envelope identical to the other one with the same official version, except now they've taken aspects of what I told them and added to it. And the aspects that they took were not in the victim's favor necessarily. But what it did do is it help them with their narrative, with their narrative that they get trained to, 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 to say 
and to you know to use in situations like this now what you need to understand is if ever a law enforcement officer comes to your house and says you know we just want to you know we want to talk to you and just eliminate you as a suspect don't believe that they're not there on behalf of you they're there on behalf of the district attorney's office when it comes right down to it because whatever statement you give them whatever information you provide them whether it's physical or, or written they're going to give it to them and then use it against you they're not your friend so tell so tell them nothing and get an attorney and even if it's a court-appointed attorney you know tell them nothing If for some reason you are unable to continue to access this set of podcasts on your current podcast platform or app, you can go to georgenassar.com, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-N-A-S-S-A-R.com, and click on the podcast link, and the entire podcast is right there. And you can listen to and download it from there. Thank you. Welcome to part two of the criminal justice system. Please be advised that these podcasts may contain subject matter which may be a trigger for survivors and their supporters. Listener discretion is advised. Now I'm going to give you a perfect example. But understand that this part of the recording may sound a little different from the previous part because I actually added this section in afterwards. Nevertheless, in 2014, I got a visit from a state trooper and of all people, a representative, an officer that is to say, from Homeland Security. Yes, the same Homeland Security that was created as a result of 9-11 here in the United States. What could they possibly want from me? It's 2014, and I've been out of, you know, prison for, well, since 1994. So, what could they possibly want? Well, they said they wanted to eliminate me as a suspect uh, in an investigation they were doing. Apparently, someone used my credentials, my email, and one of my passwords, uh, which were stolen off of my computer, um, to access some kind of illicit information or stuff like that from a website based in, I believe they said, Russia. Now, I've never even been to a website in Russia, at least not on purpose. I do go to a lot of adult websites, but None of them are based in Russia. But anyway, um, so they said they wanted to eliminate me as a suspect. And what they wanted to do was simple. They wanted to take this little thumb drive that they had, have me sign a waiver, and put the thumb drive into my computer. And it would basically collect images, 
uh, text, uh, emails, and I believe my browsing history. Now, after everything that I had been through while incarcerated, which you'll learn about, I basically wasn't going to trust them, but at the same time, I didn't want to stay on their radar. So the first thing I explained to them was that my, my computer had been hacked twice. Uh, the first time, my internet service provider basically told me, you know, just change your passwords, everything's fine. Uh, then, I think it was a month or two later, it happened again. And this time they told me to change my passwords, but if it happened a third time, they were going to close my account. And that's why I had remembered it so clearly. Um, I had also mentioned to them that my girlfriend was aware of this. And so he said, well, can we call her? We'll put it on speaker. And obviously, with them standing there and her not knowing I was calling, there was obviously no way that I could have, like, staged this or anything like that. And quite frankly, with her integrity, she wouldn't have lied for me anyway. So they called, and I explained to her they were here and, and what it was about. And without me even saying another word, she just chimed right in and she says, well, do they know that you're, you were hacked twice? You know, in that earth, you know, your, your, your service provider was going to close your account. And that was pretty much all they needed to hear because they're standing right there. Again, couldn't have planned this in advance. And nothing I said to that, you know, to the point where she interrupted me was an indicator that, you know, now lie for me, you know, which again, she wouldn't have. So, you know, then we were kind of at a somewhat of a stalemate. And um, as you'll learn elsewhere, um, I, I was now, at this time, it's, again, it's 2014, very well versed in both civil and criminal law. And I had actually even become a, a civil litigation, a certified civil litigation paralegal. So I knew law. And, and with everything I'd experienced and learned, I knew I just didn't want to be on their radar, or at least not prominently. So I told him, I said, well, here's the mouse, and I presented him the mouse to the computer. I said, you can look anywhere you want. And he says, well, no, we actually can't. Um, you know, I said, you know, then what if I use the mouse? Just tell me what you want me to point at. You know, you're not twisting my arm. And, um, <laughs> which was kind of not true, since both of these guys look like linebackers. I mean, these guys were huge, um, and not fat huge, I mean muscular huge, like they could squash your head in between their hands huge. But anyway, um, so he said, okay, so, you know, click on this folder, or click on that folder, or, you know, open up your internet browser here, you know, open up the history here, do this, do that, do the other thing. I did everything they wanted me to do, they didn't find anything. As a matter of fact, I even told them, I says, well, let me show you the folder that I keep all of the adult content. A, you know, adult content um, that I download into my computer. And I opened it, and um, some of the content showed um, actresses that you know looked a lot younger than that they than 18, but obviously they were 18. And uh, there was only one of the uh, of the videos that he saw. You know, the, the, the if, you know the start image that's there. Um, he said, you know, could you click on that? I said, yep. I double clicked on it. Video started, and he was satisfied that it you know wasn't anybody underage. Um, it was just that one frame that they had there that, you know, looked like it was. Um, and then there was even um, a folder. See, I, I've done a lot of, um, a lot of uh, 
well, attempted to do a lot of, start a lot of books, try to write a lot of books, and never really finished all but one, except for my autobiography and the one that this, you know, APWDNI, which is what this podcast is based on. But he saw um, a folder that said Natasha, and since this was a Russian site that I was supposed to have, you know, possibly have visited, um, he said, could you click on that? And he seemed like, he, you know, with bated breath, he was like, here we go, now we got him. Um, so I double-clicked on it, it was just a text file. I double-clicked on the text file and opened it up and told him, this is just one of many stories that I started. It's not even a pornographic story at all. Um, so that was the end of that. And during our conversation, I had explained that I would, that, you know, had mental health issues. I was on seven antipsychotic and antidepressant medications. And then I reached over and I pulled my bottle of vodka out and I said, and I do go to AA, you know, I am, you know, um, you know, I do drink a lot. I didn't necessarily call myself an alcoholic, but I did say I do drink a lot. And so after that, as soon as I said that, the, um, the state trooper who this whole time, because I'm talking to the, uh, to the guy from Homeland Security, the state trooper, had been tapping on his phone the whole time. I don't know if he was hacking my computer or just taking notes, probably taking notes, because I can't use any of what they got if they got anything, but obviously there was nothing to get um, because of my cooperation, you could see that. Um, so he suddenly stopped, he goes, oh, that's it. Um, we can't do anything anymore, any further, I mean. Um, he says, if, if, if you've been drinking, then nothing you've said really matters anyway. And you haven't said anything you know, of note, you know, that's noteworthy. So that was pretty much the end of their their visit. Um, but this is a per, per, perfect example of, of when I say, tell them nothing, you know? Granted, the, according to him, you know, the, the cooperation that I gave, you know, opening up things for them was pretty much more than pretty much anybody else that they had gone, because they had a whole list of, of people that they wanted to uh, visit and I was on that list and they said none of the people that they had gone to had ever given me given them that kind of access they either said no I'm not going to do it. you know I'm not going to sign this I'm not going to do it and they had to leave or you know they called their attorney and their attorney said not to say anything and they left but um, I knew enough about like I said enough about civil and criminal law by this time to uh, know better than to say anything um, and uh, it was interesting because even when I had told them that I was a civil, a certified civil litigation paralegal, um, you know, I said, I know the books are up on that shelf somewhere, the, the, the text that I, you know, for the class that I took, um, he went over there and, and I, I knew, you know, he just took that opportunity to, to go over there just to see if he could find anything his eyes could settle on that was probable cause so that they could help take the damn computer, never mind put a, put a, you know, flash drive in it but there was nothing because there was nothing to find and uh, ultimately they left but again this is a prime example of say nothing these people weren't there at my house to to clear me of anything they didn't represent me they represented the district attorney when it came right down to it any investigation they did was going to be passed on to to that sort of entity and uh, they weren't there to help me. And God forbid anything like this ever happened to you. 
they're not there to help you either. It's all for their own stuff, for their own files, and for their own case that they're trying to make against you. So say nothing. That's all I can say. Say nothing. After I made the statement to the detectives, my attorney, of course, we like, like I said, we have to go down there every seven days. My attorney finally decided to talk to me. <laughs> he yelled at me, waving this paper in the air, saying, why did you talk to them? I could have gotten you house of correction time. And I said to him, how am I supposed to know that? You never told me anything. I'm like, I've been sitting in this cell for all these months and I never hear from you. I never hear from any of your people. I don't even know what's going on with my case. I said, that's why, because you, no, you left me no choice. And he just rolled his eyes and walked away. You know, I was in the right, at least, I mean, yeah, of course. Anyone listening to this might say, well, any idiot would know not to do that. Well, there were no CSI programs. There was none of that stuff. The most we had was, I don't know, emergency room type dramas and a couple of police, like I think Hill Street Blues or something like that. But I mean, I had no way of knowing what I could do and should do and shouldn't do. I mean, there's no way that I could know that. Um, so here's what ended up happening. Uh, it's now about a year that I've been in incarcerated pre-trial. And so he convinces me that because I went and did what I did that I should plead guilty. I have a feeling he was going to have me do that anyway. But that I would plead guilty and uh, and basically throw myself on the mercy of the court because the court's the one who sentences. Uh, the district attorney office may give uh, recommendations, but it's really the court that sentences. So, all right, so th there I am now, you know, in the courtroom ready to plead guilty. And I had already told Alex, because we can communicate, and I already had told him, um, you know, what was going on in detail, because he doesn't have, well, I don't know how this whole thing, stupid brain thing works, but it apparently didn't have access to certain aspects of my thoughts. Um, don't even know if that's a thing, but that's the way it was. That's the, that's the way this went. Um, so, yeah, so I explained it all to him. Okay, so now that I've say that, said that, I'm sitting there on the stand. Uh, Virginia's in the audience. Charles DeBarger's in the audience. Because uh, I was still in, it's still in, still in touch with him here and there. And I definitely t called him when all of this happened and let him know. Um, so he, he was there. And I was surprised because, like I said, I hadn't seen, seen him for years. Um, way in the back, <laughs> uh, way in the back was my handler. <laughs> if you're wondering what that's all about, then you're going to have to listen to the About Me, and then you'll know what it is, what it's about. And he's browbeating me, and I'm like, well, what the hell he wants? I'm scared to my death, scared to death there, and my heart's pounding, I'm sweating. And so the judge has to do what's called, uh, she had to do the plea colloquy. Uh, basically, she has to tender the plea. The plea colloquy is the whole thing. She has to tender the plea, meaning she has to ask you on a indictment one, you were charged with blah, blah, blah. How do you plead? Um, 
and you're there to plead guilty, so you're not going to say not guilty. So you plead guilty, and then she asks you details about what happened because she wants to make, she has to, and this is legal, she has to do this. It's not like she was a nice person or trying to trip me up or something. Um, she has to ask, you know, you know, details. I need details. What did you do? This way she knows that I'm actually not just admitting it, but I'm saying I'm guilty, but I can actually tell you what I did because Alex took over and I went wherever I go in my head I don't know where that is I don't know how that works but I do know that I lost time and from what I was told by my attorney and what I was told by Alex later was, was first of all that you know he could see that I was in a dangerous situation he knew the truth just as I knew the truth so what he did as me was blame Alex himself but not himself because he's supposed to be me but he blamed Alex and uh, that just I guess pissed off the judge because it was interesting at one point he allowed me back after the plea colloquy and everybody's frustrated and I'm and because I'm blaming Alex and they're like who the hell is Alex and where the hell did he come from uh, well they would have probably known had they actually done a proper investigation <laughs> which they didn't neither side did the district attorneys didn't and the people representing me didn't but when I came to I'm still sitting on the stand and the judge is saying says to my lawyer is he taking any medications and he's like, yes, Your Honor, he's, he's taking antidepressants, he's had several suicide attempts, and he's had several blackouts, um, and I had. Um, they may not have understood what was going on, but I didn't, I didn't remember anything between the times, you know, when things were going on in the jail. But anyway, so the judge said, look, I'm going to see him tomorrow morning. I want him on eyeball watch tonight no medication take everything away from him that he that he can use to hurt himself and just put him on eyeball watch now i want to know, let you know what an eyeball watch is pretty much what you think except they're not watching somebody's eyeballs <laughs> you know what it is is it's a guard sitting outside your 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 thing on a chair just watching you you can do anything you want take a dump jerk off you can do anything you want <laughs> but he's there to make sure you don't hurt yourself and they did take my stuff out and they did take my medications so the morning next morning comes up again they don't know about alex nobody does because nobody asked <laughs> i might want to also say they denied me a 30-day uh evaluation at bridgewater uh treatment center for the crim criminally insane pretty much anybody in my situation and everybody in that block that was in my situation had gone for their 30 day and then come back. And I know this because I saw them leave and then <laughs> 30 days they came back. And a lot of times, you know, people talk and they talk about what's going on there and blah, blah, blah. So I got the information, but nobody had sent me there. So if they had, they would have learned about Alex. They would have learned about everything. Because um, there's a lot more details to this, but that, that's in my book. You can buy it at lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U.com. Go up to the task bar of uh, the, the search bar type in just call me foster foster is in quotes 
click the drop down menu, select books, and then click the, the go button or whatever, the arrow key, and you'll come to my book that's on there. You can buy it in paperback, which is a little more expensive because it's very thick. It's like Harry Potter book thick. Um, or you can just do the digital download. You can purchase that. Okay, so enough of that. <laughs> okay, I'm now at the next morning. Eyeball watch went well. Didn't kill myself. Didn't try to kill myself. Back in front of the judge. Okay. The same thing happened. Again, they don't know who and what Alex is. They don't know if it's a ruse. They don't know what. Of course, it wasn't. <laughs> I know that. But what happened when she started to try to do the plea colloquy again, I was gone and Alex was there and nothing he said made sense to them. Um, but I'm guilty was it coming out of that mouth, <laughs> out of my mouth slash his mouth. Anyway, guilty was not coming out because he knew that I wasn't. So finally, as was explained to me by my attorney and others that I came in contact with that were in the courtroom this time, and I might want to say that this time Virginia wasn't there, Charlie wasn't there. I think they were like, who the freak is Alex? <laughs> what the hell is he trying to pull? Um, I mean, I'd been seen by the court psychiatrist early on, and basically Dr. Michaels had said, yeah, he, he's extremely sexually immature. He doesn't understand the most basic tenets of, he understands sex, the, the mechanical act, but he doesn't understand the social aspect of it. You know, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, things like that. Gee, I wonder why with the group and all the molestation that happened in my in foster care. If you don't know about the group, read the about me, or sorry, listen to the about me. So anyway, what had happened was Alice had taken over and ultimately the judge, you know, asked the attorney to do the tendering of the plea, to ask me the questions. And, and, and because she was like, does he even understand what's going on here? And the, my attorney couldn't really say anything because the dumbass hadn't been seeing me for an entire year. He didn't investigate anything or he'd have known all of this stuff. And then he would have said, okay, wait, we got to get this guy in for treatment, you know, for 30 days to find out what, is he faking it or is this real or what's going on? Um, and of course, I wasn't faking anything. But from what I got, she asked him to to plea, to to do the plea colloquy, to, to tender the plea. Now that's illegal. She's supposed to do it and only her. And if that can't happen, then I go to trial before a jury. So he did it, and I still couldn't answer the questions properly. Gee, I wonder why. Uh, so then the judge said, "Look, we're gonna do this one more time. We're gonna wait." until this afternoon keep him on watch here at the courthouse wait till this afternoon and we're going to do this or we're going to trial and the exact same thing again happened and what my understanding is that my 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 lawyer tendered the plea again 
and the judge just accepted it. Totally illegal, but just accepted it. And that was the end of it. She sentenced me to 30 years consecutive with three years before eligibility for parole, including time served the year that I served, the year that I served pretrial. 30 consecutive years. Now, understand, just so, just so we understand, it was several decades which she was basically, which would basically equal the 30 years. But there were multiple uh, charges, so she basically put them all into the one basket there, into the one 30-year sentence. And she gave me a, what was called back then, and they were phasing it out at that time, was a reformatory sentence. This meant that rather going to Walpole State Prison, I went to Concord Prison. It has a wall, it's a 45-foot wall, um, but it's not maximum you know, security. Walpole State Penitentiary is Massachusetts' uh, main um, maximum facility for really hardened criminals. And so she sentenced me to Concord. So I wasn't going to get out until 2014, and we're in 1986, no, sorry, now a year later, 1987. So, yeah, most of my life was going to pretty much be gone. After sentencing, I was brought out to the holding area where they have you stay until they, um, I'm saying, oh, let me rephrase. After sentencing, I was brought back to York Street Jail, where I was placed into a holding cell at intake uh, for, until they gathered all my stuff from my cell that I was taking with me and then they shipped me out to Concord State Prison. Yeah. Maybe talking to the detectives wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not funny. It's hilarious. But uh, anyway, so I was there for a few years and um, well, let me refer. Let me let me go backwards. On my first day there, um, people were asking me, "What are you in for?" Blah blah blah. Because I'm a new new face. They stuck me in a dorm room full of guys. I mean, if any ever you could get mur murdered and nobody knows about it, that was the place. So, you know, I was scared or whatever. But I went to um, I went to go to the big yard. You know, the the, the main yard where all the you know. The, prisoners go to work out and socialize or whatever and I was sitting on the bench not far from the entrance and there were guards right there mulling around and someone sat next to me and I turned around and I turned to him and I look and it looks and, it, and I look and it's uh this guy who this guy who's in for murder that I knew from York Street we had become kind of chummy even though he knew I was there uh when I was pre-trial and he said listen whatever you do don't walk over there don't walk don't walk around the field and don't walk over by where the where the squash uh, court is because there's about 12 guys over there that are waiting for you to walk by so they could jump you and kill you and I'm like okay why would they want to do that he says because of what you're here for and I just thought it was strange because I couldn't imagine they kill every single person but no it was one stupid idiot probably this guy named uh, something Matthews, last name Matthews, uh, he likes to stir up crap when we were back at, Con I mean, at uh, York Street, 
And I think he got everybody worked up into a frenzy and they decided they were going to just do this. So obviously I took his, you know, his, his guidance <laughs> serious. I sat right there next to the guards until it was time and I never set foot in that yard again. I walked past it many times on my way somewhere else, but never ever did I go into that yard. And so then I told the guard that I was suicidal because, you know, I needed to get out of that damn dorm. So he put me in with a with another guy. And then ultimately they put me up on what's called New Man's Line or New Line, which is actually originally, because it's a very old, old uh, place, that was actually the original intake building. Where you, so all the new guys would go there until they were processed out into the population. But now it was for protective custody. And I basically stayed in protective custody with a bunch of other guys for quite some time. Um, then I wrote a letter to the sheriff's department. Um, oh wait, hold on. Um, first, let me say, they reclassified me several times to different prisons. But there was always someone there that was on my list of enemies, so they had to pack me back up, send me back to Concord. So they were doing this off and on uh, every few, I don't know, every six or seven months. Um, okay, so a few years went by, and yeah, they were bouncing me back and forth, back to New Line, back to New Line. <laughs> and um, I wrote a letter to the sheriff's department in, at York Street, and I said, listen, I want to go to the sex offender therapy therapy group that you guys have, plus I'd like to finish up my uh, work at, from MCDI, which is Massachusetts Career Development Institute. I don't know if it exists anymore, but at that time, I, when I was younger, um, uh, some point in time during when I was a teenager, I had been enrolled in that, and I, I took a graphic design course, but I didn't finish it. Um, so I, they happened to have the, an extension of that exact same course there, so I could get my credits and stuff like that by finishing it. So he agreed let me and let me come back, even though I'm a state prisoner doing a very lengthy sentence. Um, he just didn't feel I was, a, I was a danger to myself or to anybody else. So I went back there. I finished the, uh, the, the um, graphic arts thing. And they didn't know what to do with me then. I was still going to uh, this guy named Roy. I won't give his last name. I should, because he's a jerk. He's a freaking, mm, he's a jerk. But anyway, I was still going to Roy's sex offender group, but I did, they didn't know what to do with me because once I finished that course, that was the main reason why I went there. So they made me the librarian. They didn't have a librarian. And um, don't worry, there's, this is relevant. So I'm the librarian, and they've got mixed with mixed with the regular books, law books. And I never even looked at the law books or anything other than to reorganize the shelves so that everything was in alphabetical order and things were, you know, everything was where it should be. And I did a great job. Now what I didn't realize was that the previous librarian or another inmate that was, there, that was in that, you know, in that jail had filed a lawsuit a couple of years earlier for not having an adequate law library. Um, so that was being going through the courts. And by the time I became the librarian, it had gotten to the point where the judge was actually gonna be doing a walkthrough and be stopping at the libraries, but to, to you know, actually the walkthrough was specific for her to come, or for, I think it was a him, I'm not sure, but for him to come to the library. But anyway, he was looking around at other things, I guess, earlier on in the day. Uh, addressing other issues that inmates have and stuff like that 
Then he came into the library and he asked me straight up, he says, do you think that this library has enough law books? And I was like, well, I don't know anything about law. This is what we have here. And as soon as he saw it, he was like, shook his head, no, no, that is not, that's not even half of what you should have if you were to try to be looking up, you know, case law and stuff like that. And so that happened. And that did not endear me with the staff at all, but there's nothing they could do because I'm not the one who initiated that. However, it sparked something in my mind, something amazing that would carry on through my life up to now. And that was, I started looking at the law books and it was weird. In my, in my uh, about me, I mentioned that if you've seen the movie A Beautiful Mind, you'll understand that I had a beautiful mind. I was like the guy in that movie. Um, so I could look at something, pretty much anything, and as long as it wasn't really super complex and didn't use math, I could figure it out. I could figure out the problem, and then I could find solutions. You can check out the About Me and you'll, you'll find out more about that. But I opened up, you know, I cracked open a few law books and it was like it was, the words were just popping out at me. And I understood what I was reading and I understood how, suddenly I understood how to cross-reference that. There's a Westlaw, which has a key system. And you basically open it up and then it shows you different citations and stuff like that. Then you go and cross-reference that with the, Shep, with the um, case law books. And then you cross-reference cross those, the, cases, the case law that you want with the Shepherd's books. Um, keep in mind, there are pretty much no books anymore. I mean, they, it's pretty much all on computer now, but back then it wasn't. And so you shepherdize, it's called shepherdizing when you look cross up, cross-reference books uh, using the Shepherd's books. And within a week, I was engrossed. I used, I used up every hour that I could be in that, in that law library slash regular library, <laughs> regular library, um, I spent every chance I could with my nose stuck in that book. And, um, well, then it came time for me to get my GED, so I did that. And then, because I was studying for it, but then after that, it was right back to the books. And I was cross-referencing, and I understood the case law. And it wasn't just reading words on a page that, oh, well, the judge said this and ruled this way and descended on this case. No, I actually understood this. I could actually read the case law and understand it to the point where I was actually able to start creating briefs and motions. There were books there. I remember the F. Lee Bailey uh, books on uh, forms. So I opened those up and it told me how to actually create a document, a brief or a motion. And uh, so I, once I learned that, I was like, wow. And so now, one of the other things, the byproducts of the judge coming through, was that they assigned a law student to the, to the library or to the, the jail so that inmates could go to them and, and to him, and in this case it was a, a male, uh, could go to him and, and give, talk about their grievances and, and do I have, you know, is, do I have a, a case for a lawsuit or, or for any other action to get these, these issues resolved. And, you know, he did his job. Sometimes it was yes, sometimes it was no. But at the end of the day, he was still the lapdog of, uh, of the administration and of the uh, court system. So he wasn't going <laughs> to rock the boat too much. Um, and I had talked to him a few times. And then 
something weird happened in Roy's group. Well, just outside of Roy's group. Um, Roy can't... Well, he, I had quit the group because I wasn't getting anything out of it. It was more traumatizing than anything else. I mean, imagine, imagine that you're not guilty, right? And that you have to sit in a room full of sex offenders who are giving graphic details about their escapades. And you yourself are, ha, had been sexually abused. And then, of course, there's the group. Again, about me. <laughs> um, there's the group. And of course, they didn't know about the group, but they di did know about that I was sexually molested when I was younger. And uh, it was very impossible for me to sit there and listen to this stuff. Because I'm a victim, for crying out loud. And they didn't want to look at it like that. So I just told Roy, you know, go to hell and I won't go to come into the group because it was volunteer. So he let that go and I wasn't going for a while. And uh, so one of the things he decided to do was contact my friend um, Arnie Nielsen. Now I met Arnie through my brother Robert because my brother Robert came to the jail to see me I think two or three times and then he pawned me off on Arnie who was a Christian man who had actually brought Robert to the Lord um, you know became born again and uh, so Robert pawned me off on him so now Arnie was coming to see me and so Roy thought it was totally legal and totally normal for him to contact Arnie directly and ask him to persuade me to come back to the group. Just the fact that he, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and we have a confidentiality contract, and he's not supposed to be talking to anybody without my permission, and this is still the same way now with the HIPAA uh, uh, paperwork. Uh, so, and I don't know if they had that back then or what version it was, but he did not have the right to do that behind my back. So I filed a lawsuit against him. Now, during this time also, I had asked him if I could make a video uh, to help parents and other people prevent this kind of, you know, sex offenses and stuff like that involving their kids. And he said yes. So I was making it on Betamax. I don't know if you're old enough, if you're listening, if you're old enough to know what a Betamax player is, Betamax recorder. But that's what I was using, a camera on a tripod and hooked to a Betamax. And it was going great. I was interviewing other inmates. Some of them had been victimized uh, as a child sexually. Others had just gotten fallen astray. And, I, and, and for some reason, they, they, what they had to say was relevant to the segments that I was doing. So that was going great. Um, right up until, you know, I followed this lawsuit and unfortunately I spelt his last name wrong and the case got thrown out because of that. However, the judge was very apologetic about that and, you know, he's like, you know, I can understand where you're coming from, but unfortunately, when I'm sitting on this bench, I have to follow the rules and the rules state that, you know, if you're not, if you if you're suing someone, you at least have to have the name of the person you're suing. Otherwise, the judge, the their attorney is going to do exactly what he did, and that is send you back a, a, a response saying that this is, you got the client's name wrong. This isn't even the client; could be anybody. So it was dismissed. Um, so I continued to study law, and I was enjoying it, and then I'm. 
out of the clear blue because I was in a special unit called the skill unit and it was for people who were able to go to the law library or the library uh, engage in um, the different activities that they had including um, you know the, the main program activities but also other kinds of activities learning how to use a computer doing different kinds of things like that you could learn a different language if you wanted so anyway I'm sitting there watching TV and all of a sudden Roy comes in he's looking around he points to me and the guards like three or four guards come in and they escort me out and then the other guards started you know going through my stuff and stuff like that Roy had actually set me up and lied saying that while I was in the office filming I had uh, violated his rights by erasing some of his floppy disks which I never did I didn't even know how to use his computer but he said I, I deleted important information on his floppy disk which was complete baloney as a matter of fact the guy that was with him uh, in the group that was that was teaching was a guy named Bernard and I again I won't say his last name but Bernie for short and he went along with it and so next thing I know I'm shipped up I'm shipped back upstate but the one thing I took with me was the knowledge of those law books. First thing I got back to Concord, I, uh, I made sure that I put in a request to go to the law library. They had to, uh, they had to unless you were uh, on some kind of watch or uh, you were in trouble or something like that, they had to let you do that. So here I am back up at York, uh, back at uh, Concord, uh, Concord Prison. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm like a, pig in, in you know what when it came to the law the books the, it was amazing because I walked into the law library for the first time there and I'm like holy crap I'm like this is like wonderland all these law books aisles and aisles of books reference books everything you could possibly need to do anything you wanted to do with criminal or civil law I put my nose in those books and I was learning like a sponge, sucking up everything. I understood case law. It's, it's one thing to learn law going by going to law school. You learn the basics and you learn the etiquette and you learn obviously how to do, how to practice law. But when you get into a courtroom, it's a completely different experience, which is why new, new lawyers are, you know, kept as second seat, as they call it, second chair. Um, from the actual lawyer who's trying the case, you know, who's in there trying the case or defending the case or whatever he's doing, is because they don't because what they learn in the in the books at, at law school um, is not the same as what goes on in an actual courtroom. Uh, so anyway, I was just sucking this stuff up like a sponge, and then you know, you get noticed after a while. You know, other inmates who don't know the law, they come in and they start asking questions of the law library. Now I wasn't the law librarian. Um, and they, they would always point to me, go oh, ask that guy, you know, he knows more about law than I do, he's, I, and he's been here less time. And so they come to me, yo, I got this problem with anything, it could be they needed paperwork, that anything from writing a letter to their girlfriend, which had nothing to do with law, but <laughs> writing letters to the probation or parole department, uh, writing to the, the classification, reclassification board so because they want to go to a specific institution and they don't know how to present themselves in on paper so they were asking me to do that so I was doing that and I actually got a few people out of prison 
and I got people moved to institutions they wanted and this and that. Not everybody, not everything I did was a success, but then again, that's the same with any attorney. But I became more and more popular and more and more people were coming and I was getting paid. I was getting paid through commissary or canteen, um, whichever you know you want to call it. Uh, because if you, you couldn't really have someone on the outside putting money into your account because if all of a sudden you've been here for you know, a couple of years and you've never had anything and all of a sudden you do, it's suspicious, they do an investigation and then they'll find out. So they would just simply say, what do you want? Here's, you know, here's the list of stuff that's available, what do you want? Like the candy bars and stuff like that, you know, non-perishable stuff. Well, you know, non-perishable in the sense that, you know, nothing that needed to be refrigerated. And uh, that was how I got paid. My main way of getting paid, cigarettes. Now, I never smoked in my life. Yeah, I tried it when I was a kid like everybody else, but didn't like it, never smoked again. Um, but in prison, I'm sure even now, cigarettes are money. Cigarettes are money for, especially for people who don't have the money in anybody to put money in their account so that they can buy canteen or commissary. Um, so you, you give them, you give them Lucy's. They have, they had, they had packs, they had Lucy's, and they had, well, they had cartons, packs, Lucy's, and um, tailor-mades. Cartons are obviously a cart of cigarettes. Um, uh, packs were obviously pa packs of cigarettes. Uh, um, Lucy's were individual cigarettes. And then tailor-mades were rolled cigarettes that you roll, you know, they, you could buy tobacco in the commissary slash canteen whatever and uh, you could roll them by hand and some people were really good at that and there were some people that only liked that kind they just weren't able to roll so they made deals with them so I dabbled in all of this but I mainly stayed with the with the regular cigarettes um, because those were those were the best uh, as far as it, it exchanged you know the best exchange rate if you will um, but I got paid and I was getting bigger and bigger and then Interperimeter Security, or IPS, IPS, uh, there were some other acronyms, or some other names for those acronyms that we used to call them, but anyway. There are things that I have tried to tell you. Things that you just choose not to understand. No matter how much I try to compel you. If for some reason you are unable to continue to access this set of podcasts on your current podcast platform or app, you can go to georgenassar.com, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-N-A-S-S-A-R.com, and click on the podcast link. And the entire podcast is right there, and you can listen to and download it from there. Thank you. Welcome to part three of the Criminal Justice System Please Podcast. That these podcasts may contain subject matter which may be a trigger for survivors and their supporters. Listener discretion is advised. Uh, they were basically there to, to take care of the inner security of the institution and um, what would end up happening 
would be that anytime first well first i should say being in pc anytime i walk like left was going to leave the building i had to be escorted by a guard for the most part um and they would freeze the entire the entire institution uh, a, a voice would come over the intercom and say all departments the freeze is on the freeze is on the freeze is on and once everybody heard that inmates had to stop where they were guards didn't but the inmates had to stop right where they were even if they were in the middle of a courtyard walking somewhere and it was two feet away they had to stop right where they were because what they didn't want was a coordinated effort to ki you know to ki kill or, or or do any other kind of damage to uh, us who were in um, you know, we're in protective custody. So, part of New Line was protective custody, but another part, certain cells and certain people weren't. I got finally got to the part where I wasn't, so I didn't have to have all of that. So, I would get stopped by the inner perimeter security, the IPS, and um, they were constantly harassing me. Uh, if, well, if you because you couldn't have the property of another inmate in your possession, it was illegal, and they were trying to say that by me helping inmates do work, paperwork, because I had my accordion binder with me all the time, that if they look in there and see the names of anyone else, that means it's theirs, and that means you're going to blah blah blah. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think they realized I wasn't like every other damn inmate, and certainly not like every other damn law person <laughs> because I said to them well I can't remember the case now because my god I've forgotten so much but I threw case law at them and I said if you do that I'm gonna file a lawsuit because or so-and-so versus Commonwealth of Massachusetts blah 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 gives me the right to assist other if I have if there's an inmate with more knowledge and more understanding of the law than others and they cannot afford an attorney that they can represent themselves and they can hire you or use you as a medium for paralegal work or as an attorney even. Um, and once they said that, once I said that, they backed down and they never bothered me again. They would try little stupid things, you know, just stupid little things trying to stop me or slow me down because they knew I was, my success rate was like going sky high. But, and I'm, and I'm not kidding with you on any of this. Um, so I was finally able to just get, not really the only three, two, two places I went, well, go to the chow hall, come back to the unit, go to the chapel, come back to the unit, and for me, it was, um, go to the law library and back to the unit, so I just kept learning more and more and more, and finally, around 1990, it got to the point where, well, a little after 1990, maybe 92 or something like that. Now, by this time, I had been reclassified to Concord Farm, which was directly across the street from there, right across the road area. It was a dairy farm. It was, you could walk off the thing if you wanted to. It was minimum security. And I'd seen the parole board several times, and they denied me and told me to, oh, go to this group, go to that group, and I'd do it, and then come back six months, and they'd tell me to jump through other hoops, and they just kept this going for years they had no intentions at all of letting me leave um so anyway I ended up at Concord Farm and I loved it there I loved working down at the cow barn and with the cows and the calves I felt bad for the calves because you know the only reason why they were separated was because they were veal calves and if you know what veal is then 
Now you know where it comes from. Um, anyway, anyway, so I was, you know, I was using their law library, which wasn't quite as big as across the street, but I had enough knowledge to be able to, to bend the book set to my will, as it were. And uh, I was there for a few years and then got sent back behind the wall across the street. And uh, it was at this time that I started to look at my own case. I, I just was curious about, you know, just curious about different things. Uh, one of the first things I did, though, was I, I contacted who I needed to at the Hall of Justice, the courthouse, and I requested my indictments. Now understand, I had not heard or read, well, I never read them, but I had never heard of the indictments except for when I was in their uh, pre-trial, um, you know, waiting, awaiting trial, uh, you know, so I didn't really, you know, I really didn't know anything. You know, when, when I first became, when I was first arrested, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. When I was first arrested and the judge rattled everything off when I was, you know, chained to all those guys, in one ear and out the other, I was, you know, stunned at everything that's happening. So I really never looked at the, looked at them again. And obviously, you know what happened during the plea, plea hearings. I was like basically not there. Alex took over, so I didn't get I didn't get the reading of the indictments there either, for the most part. So I ordered the indictments, and I got them. And by this time, I wasn't at the farm anymore. By this time, I had been reclassified to another medium. Uh, it was a, I believe Shirley medium. It basically just had fences around it, but. I was sent there, and um, while I was there, that is when I actually requested the uh, the indictments. And when I got those indictments, I lost it. I lost it because I didn't know. I never. I, I just like I said, I, it was years, you know, and I wasn't listening to what that judge was saying. I'm chained to a bunch of guys and. I'm standing up and I'm listening to these charges and I didn't remember any of the indictments and I certainly didn't have copies of them but when I got them now I was livid. I was livid because I knew that I had alibis for every single one of those indictments except for the one allegation that was supposed to have occurred at Forest Park the day that I had Richard over. Other than that, I had alibis for all of the indictments. I knew where I was during these times, not to mention, and this is the real kicker, except for the situation in Forest Park, every single one of these air quote rapes that occurred were supposed to have occurred in my living room when I was living with my mother, okay? in the living room. Now there's a problem with that because back when I was living with my mom, my brother had just been adjudicated uh, for molesting my niece and my nephew. And so he was in the system, the prison system. And uh, so everybody was still, you know, very much sore about all of that and they wanted to do something so they found an organization called society's league against molestation or slam in florida and they contacted them and 
ultimately resulted in my mother, uh, Virginia, and Mary forming a chapter of that same organization here where we were. The headquarters of that chapter, the living room of my mother's apartment where I was living with her. There's a big oak desk there, a whole bunch of paperwork, and believe it or not, it was a hotline phone. We just happened to find an actual red phone. It was colored red. And you know, like Batman and Robin kind of red thing, their phone, um, the commissioner's phone, I think it was, or whatever. Anyway, the point is, um, we had a red phone. It was a hotline phone for emergency calls for, you know, victims of sexual abuse or sexual assault. And they would have to fill out the paperwork. Now, I was solicitor. Because of my age at the time, I was like 17, um, I couldn't answer the phone or anything like that. But I was solicitor. I'd create buttons and you know, stuff like that, and leaflets, and, you know, brochures, and hand them out to people, and stuff like that. Um, during that time, of course, I don't know why Virginia did it, but she would let Richard and several of his siblings sit in on our meetings, so they were, they were there when we were talking about different cases that we were dealing with, and, you know, different uh, police contacts, and Department of Social Service contacts, which is, I think it's, I think it's DCF or something now. But anyway, the DSS was, you know, I was in DSS foster home. So um, all of these people were here and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, all days, all times of, of day and night, including uh, law enforcement officers. Because they had, you know, when, when my mother would answer the phone or one of the other two would answer the phone, and there was always someone within earshot of the phone, um, someone capable of actually answering it. And again, this was in the middle of the, this was in the living room where I'm supposed to have, you know, committed these rapes, um, which was impossible because of this. <laughs> there had to be somebody within earshot of this phone because I couldn't answer it. But we had all this people coming in and coming out at all times of day and night to collect the paperwork because they, everything had to be done in a timely manner. Um, you know, someone calls you at six o'clock at night, you fill everything out. Well, I don't, but, you know, they fill everything out. And then, you know, the police would be right there because we'd have to contact them. They'd come right away, the detectives or whatever, and pick up the paperwork. So I knew that the rapes could not have happened. Not only did I have alibis, and I wasn't even there at the time, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't present at the, on those days, but even if I had been, they couldn't have happened anywhere in that house. But they didn't happen anywhere in that house, but they did happen, according to them, not anywhere else in the house, but in the living room. And they were very specific on that. They couldn't have happened in the living room or anywhere else in the house because there was always somebody there answering a phone. And the phone was always ringing. It was like every five minutes it was ringing. Somebody wanted to know something, or it was law enforcement to ask for this or that, or somebody was always calling so there's your lie and when I got the indictment excuse me when I got the indictments I know I, I do I trying to do these these casts without emotion it's not easy trust me <laughs> um, and no this is not Alex this is me <laughs> but it's very difficult so I get a little choked up at times but um, when I got those indictments and I read them and I realized what I just told you that, that, that this couldn't have happened I trashed my cell 
I mean, I had a roommate, I didn't mess with his stuff, but I totally went bonkers and trashed myself of all my stuff, threw it around, I was so pissed off, and, um, and then I, and then, you know, uh, this was a wreck time in, inside, because, you know, you could go out to the yard, or there was a, down, a bunch of tables down in the, in the gallery there that you could sit down and do things, so all the doors were open at this point in time, and there were a few bullies there that were annoying the hell out of me, and I went right for them. <laughs> I went violently, I went right for them, and I started pushing people and yelling at them, because I was so pissed off that I was at this place these years, and I didn't even belong here. I mean, I was now with absolute clarity. I mean, you got to think. What I, I hadn't mentioned, one of the things that Roy was teaching in his group was that even if even if you don't remember doing something, he was specifically talking to me, so Dan, even if you don't remember doing this or that, there must have been other victims. I mean, this was this guy's a quack, but he's, he's telling me this stuff. Now, I'm young at that time, younger than I was when, when I suppressed my cell and all that other stuff, um, and this was while, of course, I was at York Street Jail, um, but... I just believed him because how, who, he's the professional. He's the first and only professional I've ever talked to about this situation. And um, so, you know, when he said that, I had to believe him. I assumed, yeah, okay, well, I blacked out. So, you know, all these times and all these years in my childhood. So maybe, maybe he's right. But now I knew for certain he couldn't have been right because <laughs> I'm looking at these indictments and I know they're bogus, they're baloney, and I have alibis. So that was also what got me ticked off. That's why I brought up Roy just now. Because that was the other thing that was going through my head. And I was like screaming in my head, how dare he? How dare he use me and then freaking throw me to the wolves on some lying ass crap? And so now, yeah, so I was pushing guys that, were, <laughs> that I shouldn't have been. And I think I even clocked a couple of people and the guards froze everything came running up grabbed me dragged me to the hole which is basically isolation unit and i sat there for about a few weeks and then i came back out and uh this is you know they're like we're gonna have a problem i'm like oh you're not gonna have a problem <laughs> somebody is and so i uh i delved right into my case i generated some uh affidavits that needed to be signed by family members. I wrote them out and I told them anything on this affidavit that you do not agree with or that did not, that you don't think happened, maybe I'm wrong, cross it out. I'm still gonna use it, but just cross it out. That way I, we know it's your words, not mine. You know, these are the things I'm describing, but you're, you were there and you can either say yay or nay. No, that's not the way this happened or no, this never happened or whatever. Nobody crossed out anything. My mother, my oldest sister Marlene, and her and my other sister Terry all signed these affidavits, and that validated, that solidified my alibi, solidified, solidified where I was and everything like that. And yeah, I was now agitated. I was angry, but I knew that, you know, I needed to focus and not trash, not beat up anybody, but just to focus on what I was trying to do. So I did. I started creating a case for myself. Now, here's something you need to understand. When you plead guilty, 
when you plead guilty, that's the end of the road. You don't get appeals. There's no such thing. You didn't go to trial. There are no appeals. There are no arguments. There's nothing. You plead guilty. Now you serve out the time that you were supposed to serve out or get parole or whatever. Um, so for me, the, for me, the whole thing was I needed to present to the court the, the mishandling of my case in such a way that it would make the plea agreement null and void. That's very hard to do. Virtually impossible if you ask an attorney, but it is not very easy to do at all because that's the whole reason why lawyers tell their clients to plead guilty, to, to, to cop a plea. You know, you'll, the, you know the, 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 oh, you only get X amount of years. The district attorney is only throwing this many years at you. What they don't tell you are two important things. One, when you plead guilty, the judge doesn't have to accept how many years the district attorney and you may have said. As a matter of fact, the judge has to specifically ask you, have you made any agreements outside of this court with the district attorney because it's illegal? And you say no, of course. And, uh, you know, because, assuming I said no, uh, because they want to make sure that you're there for the right reasons, which of course no one ever is. And 99.9% .9 of the time, the judge will go along with the DA's recommendation and all that bull crap, and it just skirts the law. Um, but in this case, I really had to figure out a way to invalidate, to invalidate my plea. The, the alibis weren't just going to be enough because I still pled guilty. It doesn't matter what evidence I find, you know, years later. Um, it helps, but first you got to get this plea the hell out of the way. And I did. And I did. Because at this time, I was able to prove that the judge, by taking the plea colloquy and the tendering of the plea and handing it to, the, to my attorney, Okay, who ultimately, you know, that was ultimately how I, how the judge accepted the plea. The attorney asked me the questions, or Alex, <laughs> the attorney asked me the questions and answers were given. And then the judge said, okay, I accept this. And that was the end of it. That was illegal. The judge has to tender the plea, period. You can't pass it off to anyone else except maybe another judge. And I'm not even sure if that's legal. Um, so there was that. There was the alibi evidence and then other evidence that I could prove that, you know, where I was and stuff like that. And like I said, the only thing I couldn't prove anything about was when I was in the park with him. But I blacked out. I lost time. And Alex wasn't talking. You know, he wasn't saying what happened. I mean, I'm yeah, sitting there going, what can a freaking 13-year-old say that would cause you to feel like you needed to take over? But nope. The fact that he took over is the reason, as he would say it, the reason why he won't tell me what the hell happened. Because he knew it, I wasn't going to be able to deal with it. So, okay, that was that. Um, I would later learn, I would later learn a, a bit more about what, ha what was going on in this kid's mind and why he lied. But the other thing is, I looked at the official version, both official versions, and I noticed something I hadn't noticed when I was at York Street, because I hadn't really read them since then, and that was that the words that were being used, the phrases, the cadence, 
they weren't his. I'd spoken to Richard enough times to know that, and they weren't his. And also, the district attorney's office and the, and, and the detectives, they were pigeonholing everybody and anyone who had any contact with a child that was inappropriate. They basically had a cookie cutter. And here's the funny thing about that cookie cutter, and it's relevant to the information that I found, because this is also information I found. The cookie cutter is this. The, 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 the offender meets the child, however it is, inserts that person, in, inserts them into their lives somehow, um, usually with the parent's blessing, like you're a coach or a priest or a rabbi or, oh God, did I say rabbi? Oh my God, don't say that. <laughs> they aren't, they've never done anything like this. But anyway, wh whoever it is, you, you insert your first, you know, you meet the person, you insert yourself into their lives, then you go through what they will call a grooming process, where you basically do different things in a certain pattern to get the child to trust you enough to be able to, you know, get in their pants. You know, that's basically the bottom line of the whole thing. Um, and everybody was in this cookie cutter. So even if the circumstances, even if the evidence itself contradicted that, they would still use that. And that was the reason why, see, like I said before, I had met Richard when I was 17. What I hadn't mentioned was that he was also my mother's paper boy because he, he delivered the papers. At that time, I didn't even know him other than, here's your money, kid, and go away, or here's, here, thanks for the paper, go away. Um, it wasn't until maybe a year later, when I was 18, that he started to make these sexual advances towards me. And of course I said, no, when I actually sat him down one day and I said, listen, this can't happen. Understand that? I'm way older than you, I'm only six years, but I'm way older than you. And I'm sure you can find some friend from school or something you can mess with. But he was, you know, he was persistent, but okay. So that's that situation. That's that situation. So now I'm, you know, discovering more and more stuff about my case. And part of it was I remembering that, that he sat in on, he and his brothers and sisters had sat in a lot of slam meetings and um, Society's League Against Molestation meetings. And so he had the expanded vocabulary to use some of the words that he learned there. So I figured that was that was where some of this came from. But when I looked deeper, I was like, he would never say this this way. He would never say this this way. He would never say those words. That's not even in his vocabulary. I was just realizing that what they did was they said they took the statement and then they polished it up so that it would cook, be a cookie cutter to show that the minute I moved in, the minute my mother and I moved into that apartment, I immediately met him and we and I started this grooming process and blah blah and all that stuff. That never happened. I'd known the kid for a year beforehand and that was just as a paper boy. So it was like, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> you know, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, and here's, here's another thing. His mother, because Ghostbusters was on television, they didn't have cable, and so he, yeah, so um, my brother and I invited him over to watch, watch at my house, and uh, that, you know, that went off with without a hitch basically, 
And then um, he wanted to sleep over at one point in time. His mom said, okay, and I didn't have a problem with it. So he put some blankets on the floor and, and he slept over. And the reason I'm only bring, I'm bringing this up, because nothing happened, but the reason I'm bringing it up is because they didn't. I mean, if ever there was a perfect storm of, 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 of matching their cookie cutter, that was it. Why didn't they know about that? Because they didn't do an investigation. They just assumed and then wrote everything down as they chose so that it would match their form. But had they actually asked somebody, my mom would have said something, I would have said something, or my brother would have said something if we were asked and said, well, yeah, well, Richard slept over and nobody, nothing ever happened. But the, here's the thing, that, the thing that I'm t pointing out is they should have known that. They should have investigated, but they didn't. They never talked to anybody. They never talked to my mom. They never talked to my stepdad or my siblings. They never talked to the people in the neighborhood or the people that were involved in SLAM. They didn't even know SLAM existed. That was part of the catalyst that ultimately got me out early. But I don't want to jump the shark and tell you about that yet. But that was part of the catalyst. No, they, because they never questioned anybody. They never knew that we had this nonprofit running right out of the same <laughs> living room where I'm supposed to have been committing these, these heinous acts. They didn't know that. They didn't realize it was impossible for that to happen. And they certainly didn't know on those days I had an alibi and was somewhere else because I couldn't answer the phones. I didn't have to be there all the time. I lived there. I could sit there and watch TV. But, you know, if the phone rang, whoop, TV's got to go down. I mean, it was annoying. It was really annoying because, you know, being solicitor, fine. I, I agreed to do that because they needed somebody to do it for the, you know, for the, for the records. Um, but anyway... They never checked out anything, the, the district attorney's office, the detectives or anybody else, or anybody from my side of the aisle at, at all. So, okay, so that was all in there as well, in these, in these uh, affidavits that I had them, um, you know, sign. By the way, I hate when people call it an affidavit, like David, D-A-V-I-D. It's affidavit with a T, okay? So there, look it up, you'll find out you know what the heck I'm talking about. I know a little bit about law, <laughs> as you'll find out later on. So, okay, I get the stuff back, the affidavits back, and I see all the signatures and dates, and I'm like, cool. And I sign my name to, you know, to validate, you know, I got them. And uh, I think I even had them notarized. Uh, notarize the originals because uh, they have a notary public that does their rounds at the prison system for legal reasons if you need something notarized they come for like a three days a week or something like that anyway I got it notarized I'm pretty certain but I just delved even deeper into this and the more it was like it was Alice in the rabbit hole I mean the more that I delved into it the angrier I got but I controlled myself uh, but the more I learned that you know, I was set up. That this was this this wasn't real at all. And I was like, okay. Once I thought I had enough money, money. Sorry. <laughs> Once I thought I had enough evidence, I went and presented my. I created some briefs and I created some motions and I presented them to the court. Uh, first, obviously, was the writ of habeas corpus. 
um, to, to bring me to you know compel them to bring me to the court. I also signed a waiver, an affidavit of indigency, so that I didn't have to pay the court uh, filing costs and fees, which is pretty standard for you know most in, for most inmates. They do that because they don't have the money to pay, um, and so my stuff was accepted by the clerk of courts. And then there was a few anomalies, and I needed clarification. So I actually called the clerk of courts, and um, I would talk to them for, for like hours. Um, so I got to know uh, Susan at the clerk of courts office rather well. And she made sure that my briefs and motions were filed correctly and that they went before the judge as they were supposed to. And so there were some blocks, some roadblocks that, that the courts tried to put up to slow me down, but I was well too versed in law. Everything they said, I would just drop it, basically drop kick it. And so I kept moving forward and forward and forward. And of course, during all this time, I'm moving from institution to institution. Uh, so different parts of what I'm telling you happened at different institutions, so different filings of briefs and motions. I may have been at this institution one time and another one at a different time, but I'm just letting you know that I moved around. So if you, if you hear me talking about a certain thing at an institution, you're like, wait, didn't he say he was at this other institution? He's lying right there. We caught him. No, no, nothing like that. I was moved to different locations, different institutions, all throughout what I'm doing in the court system. So I'm not going to give you the whole chronology of where I am and all of that type of stuff. So, um, Susan was, you know, a big help, and I got through all the hurdles, and ultimately I ended up at, um, I think it was MCI Shirley Prison. Uh, I don't, yeah, it wasn't, I don't think it was the medium. No, it wasn't. Well, anyway, wherever I ended up, uh, I finally managed to get to the point where I was going to have my day in court. And all of a sudden, my well, I get a letter basically saying that uh, a new there's a new law that has been enacted, which says that in order for an inmate to to have a, a court date, which I already had the court date, <laughs> and I already made the agreements with the district attorney's office and stuff, and so you know, but anyway, if you're going to do that. And before you can actually have a court date and go into court, you have to have a lawyer represent you, whether it's one that we appoint you, the state, or one that you get yourself. Uh, and that lawyer, and this is, you know, love this, the lawyer has to determine the merits of the case. So if that lawyer looks at the case and says it has no merit, that means you're serving out the rest of your time. That means that's the end of your, you have no more uh, avenues of, you know, of, litig of, of dealing with the litigating this particular issue. That's it. It's over. So they appointed me an attorney. What do you think he said? What do you think he said? This case has no merit. And he sent me a letter saying that he filed that answer with the, with the, with the courts and basically bid me farewell and good luck. And uh, that was it. I get to serve out the rest of my time. I get out when I'm, I don't know what the hell age I would have been, but at least I, won't, I, I get out at 2014. I did say eight years though in the beginning, somewhere's back there, didn't I? Oops, did I make a mistake? No, 
I was only in for eight years. See, this is the thing. I learned something about myself while I was incarcerated. And I studied a lot. I didn't just study law. I studied I studied a lot of different kind of philosophies, different different uh, a whole bunch of different books. And I also studied um, what would I would realize later would be called social engineering and also game theory. I never even heard of social engineering or game theory until I was released. But I was act- enacting all of those things in my efforts to try to get out. So I sat back and I'm like, okay, I'm going to serve the rest of my time. This is stupid. And then I come to find out that law was enacted for me, personally. I mean, I looked at the timeline and I looked at the law itself and it was enacted right after I overcame the last legal hurdle that would get me towards, you know, going out the door. And all of a sudden this new law comes up and now I have to serve the rest of my time. I've gotten this far. I learned all this law. I learned way more of this law than I would have, normal, that I would have normally uh, just doing other inmates' work. I did all this work and now they're telling me it's all for nothing. Again, I sat back and I thought about it. And then it hit me because I had also realized that I was a creative genius. I read all the books and I, and I did all the studying and while I'm terrible at math and could never pass a regular IQ test for the most part, a creative genius is completely different than any other kind of genius. A creative genius is actually better than any other kind of genius because creative geniuses aren't good at one thing. They're actually not good at anything except for creating ways to get past obstacles, creating ways to deal with issues. You size up the issue, you look at it as it is in the raw, you don't use rose-colored glasses or sugarcoat it, and then you create plans A, B, C, and whatever to deal with it. I was great at that, which is why I was so great at law, which is why I was able to get to where I was able to get to even though I had pled guilty. I shouldn't have been able to. Their biggest concern, well, we'll talk about their biggest concern in a minute. So what did I do next? Now, what could I do next? I can't go to I can't go to the courts anymore. I can't file anything anymore. No briefs, no motions. But then it hit me. The lawyer. The lawyer. That's what it was. That was their Achilles heel. And I don't think they even thought about it or knew about it. I'm sure they knew about it in general, but didn't think that I would have known about it. So they didn't even have, the, it wasn't even in their, in their brains when they were doing all this stuff. So they created that law specifically for my case. Of course, it works for everybody else's, but they specifically did it for me to stop me from getting out. There was no question about that because there was nothing like it before it on the books. Not like that. I contacted the Board of Bar Overseers. Now these are the guys, these are the guys who can take the the license away from attorneys or grant licenses to attorneys. They're the guys you complain to when you don't think an attorney is representing you to, representing you properly. So I did. I didn't just write a letter to them. I sent 
a big ass thick folder full of all of my evidence from the beginning to the end from the from from when I was first picked up all the way through the through the bogus plea hearings three three hearings three plea hearings it only takes one plea hearing to say I'm guilty took three hearings before the judge before Alex said one thing that sounded like I'm guilty and then just said okay I'm, I'm gonna accept the plea so she shouldn't have done that like I said before they read everything and I don't know what they thought about me register yeah not register I mean uh, sex offender I always use the word register in front of me because I'm so used to saying that now out here but anyway I was just a sex offender you know why would they even endorse such a thing well because it was endorsable because it was right because it was legal and because I completely showed them my case and they agreed with me they contacted Charles Stevenson who is the attorney I'm gonna mention his name because he is a, he's an attorney and I really don't care um, but they uh, they contacted him and they told him he had to take the case that there was merit that they determined there was merit and that if it was determined there wasn't merit that he would have consequences which pretty much meant he's going to take your license away because for for not not uh, representing your client with zeal. And the zeal is actually on the books. You, they have to represent the client with zeal. You know, like the other attorney that I had pre-trial did not do. He was pissed. When he came to see me, he said, okay, fine, we're going to go to court. He says, and you guys have your agreement. I just hope we're not releasing and he said this and I'm quoting I hope we're not releasing a monster into society If for some reason you are unable to continue to access this set of podcasts on your current podcast platform or app, you can go to georgenassar.com, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-N-A-S-S-A-R.com, and click on the podcast link, and the entire podcast is right there. And you can listen to and download it from there. Thank you. Welcome to part four of the Criminal Justice System podcast. Please be advised that these podcasts may contain subject matter which may be a trigger for survivors and their supporters. Listener discretion is advised. That was their whole thinking in the first place. Now, you got to remember... Attorneys have to deal with you know, court-appointed attorneys and regular attorneys, but regular attorneys don't care because they're rich and they have money coming in from people who can afford them. But court-appointed, court-appointed attorneys are just regular attorneys who have to serve a certain amount of time in public service. I think all attorneys have to do that, but they only get paid chicken scratch. So they don't put any effort into the case. And I also 
they have to deal with these judges and the DAs and every all the people who are relative to the criminal justice system, including right down to the police officers who are, did the original arrest. They've got to deal with these people on a daily basis. So if they do something that kind of screws somebody over, then that person isn't going to give them any leeway. You know, imagine going before a judge and having a case and then you vehemently, you know, you know, you zeal zealously and vehemently, you know, represent and, and, and counterpoint everything. The next time that that same um, attorney comes before that same judge, the judge isn't necessarily, even though it's not legal, but isn't necessarily going to give him the benefit of the doubt in different things. I mean, they got to deal with this. So you don't, you know, you don't uh, kick sand in the in the eyes of the other people who are in playing in the same sandbox you are. Let me just put it that way. So that also, I'm sure, had to weigh in on, on his reasoning why he said it had no merit. But it was mostly what he said to me, that he didn't want to be responsible, you know, for releasing a monster into society. And quite frankly, when I read the, when I, well, when I read the, the uh, indictments and, you know, if anybody did, you'd be like this, thinking the same thing. Oh, my God, look what this guy did to this poor child. Yeah, poor child, my ass. So, um, I ended up getting my day in court. Now, let me rewind one little bit, because there was something that I, I said earlier, and I said we get to it later. Um, don't really remember exactly what it was that I said. I'm not going back through this to find out, even though I could, but I'm going to say this. Oh, I know what it was when I said that, that Richard was sexually active with other people in the neighborhood. He was, I didn't know it then, but he was. And one of them, a drug dealer, that I knew was a drug dealer from there, because remember, when I was living on Stonina Drive with my mother in Chicopee, I was doing, um, I was working um, full time for the, uh, for, for the housing uh, department at that housing unit and mowing the lawn and stuff like that. So I got to know who the drug dealers were and all that type of stuff. So this guy, while I'm at Concord Farm, walks up to me, walks behind me, taps me on the shoulder, and I turn around and my heart dropped. I was sure that a fist was coming right after that tap. He stood there and looked at me straight in the eyes. And I didn't say anything. And he says, you know what? You got screwed. And this is what he told me. God's honest truth. He said, Dan, listen. That kid was screwing everybody in the neighborhood at that time. Anybody who would do it. And he laughed about putting you in jail. He thought it was funny that he could do that. You know? And I felt such, I felt such relief. Because here was somebody who had no vested interest in my case or anything else. And he was basically saying, look, you got screwed. You got screwed. Of course, I knew it now because, you know, now at this point in time, not then, not when I was talking to him, but at the time, you know, once I learned law and all of that, had my indictments and all the evidence, and now I'm, got, I'm going to court. You know, I knew what he was saying at this point, but I didn't know it back then. I didn't under, I, I had no idea. I had no idea, and I, it didn't make me very happy to hear that, but it made me hear, it made me happy to hear it from whom I was hearing it from, 
so okay we get my day in court and uh, <laughs> I had made an agreement with them that basically was going to satisfy both of us because if I didn't then I would have been spending a hell of a lot more time in there because they would have just basically dragged their heels and that's what they would have done and I knew they could do that and all I wanted was out I didn't care about anything else I just wanted out of that hellhole like I said, there was a reason why I kept bouncing back and forth from different institution to different institution, and that's because I had enemies in just about all of them, you know, or I made enemies and I was only there for a month. I mean, so that's why I was bouncing around. So I needed to get the hell out of there, okay? And so this knucklehead that's next to me, this stupid Charles Stevenson attorney, a dumbass, he's... <laughs> In the, while we were doing this, he was he, he, the the judge said something, and um, and he said he felt that oh wait we don't want to deal with this with the rule whatever I forget it rule thirty or something like that I forget which one it was that I filed for my immediate release uh, along with the habeas corpus and that um, so he was trying to change the plea the the, the um not the plea he was trying to change the uh the documents right then and there he was trying to to change what i was saying in the documents and the judge just held up her hand she says no wait i think we know what we're doing <laughs> because it was like talking he was she, she talked to him like she was talking to a little child because she knew that he hadn't been with me all throughout all of the conversations i had with the clerk of courts and all of the briefs and motions and all of that he only had a brief moment to look over anything so he had no idea what the hell was going on and so she rightly so told him to just basically be quiet. <laughs> She's like something like, Counselor, I understand what's going on here. Thank you. And that was it. He sat down. And I looked at him. I says, and I, I said to him, I said, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and he says, well, you know, I just don't, 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 don't. And I told him, don't. I said, I've worked hard to get to this point. You're not screwing this up for me. And I know that's what he was trying to do. He didn't want me walking out the door. The proceedings continued without a problem until around the middle of it, the district attorney's office decided, <laughs> their, their representative, the ADA, they decided that they needed to address a particular issue they hadn't thought about apparently until that moment. So he asks, the ADA asked to um, approach the bench and the judge lets him and uh, the judge covers the uh, the microphone but you could still hear what she was saying and he said something about me filing a lawsuit and she said well he can't sue me and then there was some mumbling and then she sent him back to his chair and then she paused the whole entire proceedings she just Paused the whole proceedings, and the judge, my, me, my attorney, the woman from the probation department, and the D ADA, who represents the district attorney's office, the assistant district attorney, all went into this little room. And uh, I thought it was kind of weird because I didn't get it, <laughs> but I would soon. See, we already had, like I said before, an agreement on paper, signed by me, signed by them 
ironclad. But after he mentioned that, I guess they got a little bit concerned that, yeah, wait, he, we just made him spend eight years in prison, but mainly they were worried that I would file a lawsuit. I don't think anybody thought about that before, before then. So we went into the room, and what they did was they put the paperwork in front of me that we had originally agreed to, and they added the following. First, no contact with the clerk of courts whatsoever without an attorney. No filing any briefs and motions whatsoever without an attorney. Adding one year onto your probation, my probation, or adding one year to your probation, which you must complete successfully. If you violate any of these, we will enact blah, 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 which basically was going to put me back in prison, but this time it was going to put me in Walpole State Prison. So I'm standing there thinking, well, what the hell? I can't disagree with this. <laughs> this is highly unorthodox. So I said, okay, and I signed the paper. What I didn't realize at that time, but I would, I would realize once I was released at some point, is that the statute of limitations to file a lawsuit of this kind is three years. The exact amount of years we agreed that I would stay on probation. Now you're probably wondering, wait, probation? How could you be overturning a case? I mean, overturning a, um, well, a case, yeah, but a guilty plea. And where's this probation now coming from? Well, here's the thing. The only way they were going to let me out right away without dragging their feet, like I said, was if I accepted uh, time served, if I accepted a new plea here, a plea agreement, and then all of the other things that were listed on that thing, as I said. So once I signed it and dated it and they signed it and I, they dated it, they felt very confident that they weren't going to have any backlash or, you know, any blowback as far as, you know, screwing me over for eight years because they did, they, they, the case was mishandled right from the very beginning. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. I'm me. Who the hell did they think they were dealing with? Anyway. So we went back into the courtroom and she blathered on, the, 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 the judge blathered on about something about, it was a mutual, a mutual mistake. The first thing that came into my mind was, wait, I was 19 years old, knew nothing about the law. I didn't make any damn mistakes. If there was a mistake, it was made by my lawyer. It wasn't mutual, mutual not to me. I didn't know what this idiot was doing. And by the way, I mentioned way, way back when that we would be, we would be talking about my original attorney, that I wouldn't see him again for eight years. Well, this is eight years later. He was actually there in the court. He had the nerve to shake my hand and to say he was sorry because he thought that I got out, that everybody thought that I got out on parole. They knew damn good and well that the parole, and this is something you need to understand, that the parole department has absolutely nothing to do with the criminal courts. Parole is after you're convicted by the criminal courts and sentenced and are now in jail or prison, they now have the opportunity or option to decide if you're rehabilitated enough to go back into society early. Maybe you have time served, maybe you have some good time credits. Those are credits that you get when you go to programs, therapy programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, NA, um, different church functions, things of that, 
that thing, that matter. Um, so I'm standing there looking at him, and I just shook my head, let go, of, shook my head, let go of his hand, and I was like, you know, just, you know, just disgusted with him. But a mutual mistake? No, it wasn't a mutual mistake with me. But okay, so we signed the papers, went back in there, and mutual mistake, blah blah blah. And um, the next thing I know, just like Jeannie folding her arms and bobbing her head, and it goes boing, 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 boing. I'm sitting outside on a bench, um, waiting to be picked up by by you know by a friend. I, I might want to add one little thing to this. My case was the last one being heard that day. I mean, they actually, first of all, that judge was sit was sitting, presiding over uh, uh, over the court in Northampton, Massachusetts, um, where I was originally adjudicated at the Hall of Justice in Springfield. So I had to be shipped from wherever I was to their county jail and then from the county jail to the courthouse. So as I was saying, my case was the last one to be heard that day and yet when I was into the when I went into the court courtroom with my shackles you know and my handcuffs um, the place was packed I mean it had a whole bunch of different people in there and I'm trying to figure out why are all these people here <laughs> when this is the last this is the last uh, case to be heard as it turned out I noticed when I was ultimately leaving the courtroom um that a lot of them looked like they were law students and stuff and it occurred to me also that this was a unique case like i said overturning a guilty plea is virtually impossible that's why you make guilty pleas is to avoid it's for and your part as a defendant to avoid all the craziness of oh my god i might get this much time i might get that much time you know the crap that they tell you to get you to plead guilty um, you know, from the state state's point of view, it saves them money for a jury and all of that other stuff. So I just thought that was interesting that there were all those people there. It just kind of struck me odd. But okay, so, uh, so at some point in time, by the way, during the um, proceedings, right when they withdrew the original plea, I, the judge ordered that they take off my, um, my handcuffs. They didn't take off the shackles, though, yet, because we hadn't gotten to the second phase. The second phase of this whole situation, this mutual mistake, the second phase was basically them trying to make sure they secured another guilty plea. So, once again, the judge did the plea colloquy, and she tendered the plea, guilty of indictment, blah, blah, blah. What did you do? What happened? And I... This was me now, this wasn't Alex. Oh yeah, wait, the first thing she asked me, the first thing she asked me was before we go on, go along or something like that, um, I'd have to look it up on the transcripts exactly. I have, I have the transcripts from both the original plea and, and the, this one here. But I believe she said something to the effect of, uh, are we talking to Alex? And you know, I stood up and I said, Your Honor, um, yeah. I said, I dealt with Alex in, in therapy while I was incarcerated. Obviously, she's not a therapist because if she knew that, she if she if she was, I mean, she'd know that that's impossible. You don't just whisk away a freaking multiple 
multiple personality. It doesn't have, work that way. And in fact, I was lying, of course. Alex still exists even to this day. Um, but I wasn't going to say that to her. Why would I do that? Then, then what? Because then I'm already, they've already withdrew the plea, so they can't go back on that. So the only thing they can do is decide now, or if I said that I didn't want to plead again, the only way they could deal with that at this point was to say, then we're going to go to trial. So I bit my tongue and I said, you know, no, no more Alex. And that was it. And uh, so that was that. Um, and then, of course, we went through the whole process of, of uh, once, once I agreed, once I, you know, I did the plea, plea they had the shackles taken off. Um, and it was actually before that, like I said, you know, that we went into that room and did all that other stuff. I just wanted to make sure we're clear on the chronology. Um, so now my, I know no cuffs on for the first time in a long time, um, where I wasn't behind a wall or behind fences where I didn't eat them, <laughs> didn't eat them. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so there I was one second. I've got all this buzzing about my, my case and what's going on here and what's going on there. And the next, the whole courtroom is cleared. And I remember, I remember, I think it was my, my, that Charles Stevenson, I believe he turned around and he asked me if I had enough money for a fare and if I had made arrangements, you know, for a drive, for a ride, not like he was going to ride me. I said, yeah, I can, I have enough money for, for, not for, for the phone. I meant to say for the phone, um, did I have enough money for the phone? And I was like, yes. Yeah. So then he left and I look back in the courtroom and I'm, it's empty. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> and then, then, like I say, the next thing I know, you know, like, like I just mentioned, <laughs> boing, and I'm just sitting out on a bench in front of the courthouse, looking around, thinking, is this real? <laughs> Am I going to roll over on my bunk and face that damn freaking concrete wall again? I mean, is this real? Am I being fooled around with here? Because this does not feel real. This does not feel real at all. But then I hear honk honk and my friend pulls up in her car and uh, that was real. It was real. And I was out. And I was so proud of myself. You know, I'm hugging my little accordion binder, you know, and I'm walking over to the car and we get in, I get in and talking and seatbelt goes on and then I'm just normal it's like looking around at the cars around me I'm like this is the first time I've been out of an institution where I didn't have handcuffs and shackles on and I was in the back of a van <laughs> you know and you could peer out and look through the windshield and get a glimpse of freedom but that was about as far as you were going to go and now I'm in somebody's regular car no cuffs no shackles no van no other inmates to be chained to and I'm just sir it's just, I'm just amazed and I'm like it, this is surreal so, what did we learn in this podcast? Well, I'm not going to go down a whole chronology of crap, but I will made, maintain the main bullet points. When you get arrested, make no statement. Never call upon the detectives or anyone else uh, involved in the case from the other side of the aisle. In other words, the prosecution side. side. Um, never 
call them, never make a statement to them, never say anything to them. If you are presented with a situation where you are told, even if it is a paid attorney, that you should go and plead out rather than go to trial, never plead out. Never plead guilty, ever. I don't care what the circumstances are. I don't care what you did or what you think you did or what they think you did or what you didn't do or whatever. They're going to throw numbers at you to scare you into saving them money and time and energy. Okay? They've got to get all, go through the whole jury pool selection and annoy those poor people. And then they got to find professionals to have expert witnesses and then all the other witnesses and then all of the documentation that has to go, briefs and motions and, and all the stuff, that swirl of things that has to happen in order to ultimately find you guilty. And then even then, this next thing is this. In a jury trial, okay, regardless of what anyone said you might get, you know, you're going to get 50 years, you're going to get two consecutive life sentences, and blah. Look, may happen, may not happen, but they have no idea whether it's going to happen or not. What, do they got a crystal ball? No. They're giving you all that line of malarkey, as well as your attorney, appointed or paid, because it costs a lot to, to do with all of this, and it's time-consuming, and nobody likes trials. Could you imagine if nobody went to a plea hearing, went to cop a plea, and went to trial instead? never plead guilty because no matter what they tell you they have no way of knowing that they don't know what the jury is going to hear they don't know what evidence is going to be allowed in and what's going to get thrown out you don't know that until you're going through the jury trial until you're preparing for the jury trial and then new evidence might come in and the judge may say you know sustained or you know <laughs> hit the road jack and forget it you know you don't know about the arguments which are going to be made your attorney, depending on how good he is and what or she is, and has the and how good the resources they have behind them, is going to determine a lot about how this case goes by. You know what happens in this case. If it's a court-appointed attorney, yes, don't plead guilty either. Again, even though they're basically not going to use the full resources that they might have available to them, or maybe they do. Either way go to trial because here's what trial offers you first of all okay in a jury trial okay in a jury trial what is actually happening there is that you are you as the defendant and you know and your attorney are presenting your theory of events the district attorney's office is presenting their theory of events you could be as guilty as oh I don't know whatever <laughs> you could be really guilty and it doesn't matter because if your attorney can present his theory of events to the jury more convincingly than the prosecutor you could be walking out the door it's that simple and there's no way to know that until all of the evidence and everything else has been put together and then it's been presented to the jury and the judge says what they have to say and up and down it's like a roller coaster of events that happen during a jury trial but it all boils down to their theory of events versus your theory of events and it doesn't matter who's telling the truth and who's telling a lie at least not to to, to both parties it matters to the people who are the you know the 12 people sitting in the jury pool 
uh, you know, in the, in the jury stand. But it has nothing to do with you guys. You guys are just sitting there trying to say, push, this is what, what really happened. And then he's trying to say, no, this is what really happened. And here's the evidence, and here's the evidence, and here's the witnesses, and so on and so forth. And it's up to the jury to make the decision. Juries do not always make the right decision. When I say right decision, I mean they don't always make the decision in favor for the person who actually is innocent or actually is guilty. You see what I'm saying? So they can find an innocent person guilty and a guilty person innocent. But you won't know that if you plead guilty. You won't know any of that. Not to mention, this is the second part of this. After the trial is over, you can appeal. What your attorney is appealing are different things that were brought up during the trial. So just because he presents evidence or, 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 or statements or something like that and the judge throws it out, does not mean that that's the end of that evidence or statement or whatever it is. Once the judge takes that action, whether, whether the judge throws it out or leaves it in, you can appeal. So if your attorney puts something, presents something, uh, you know, before the, before the court and the judge throws it out and then turns to the jury and says, you know, disregard this or that or whatever, you can still bring that up at appeal along with a whole mess of other arguments and things that you just would not believe and you just can't know until and unless you go to a jury trial. But if you cop a plea, there's no guarantee when you're going to get out. Now, the other thing is probation, like I may have said, or like I know I said earlier. There's no connection between the court, the court system and probation. All right. I'm sorry, parole. I'm at the, the parole department. Nothing. In other words, if they promise you the moon, the stars, and you'll be out in a couple of years because you'll make parole, and da, 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 they can't say that. And don't listen to them when they say that because they have no control over the parole, the parole board. Only the parole board does. So when you're, go, if you're adjudicated, however it is, whether you plead guilty or are found guilty, you can do all these good activities and stuff, get time off your sentence. When you get before the, 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 the parole board, they don't have to give you parole. It doesn't matter what agreements you made with the district attorney because, again, they're separate. They have nothing to do with each other whatsoever. Another thing I didn't know, of course, I didn't know anything about a law. I didn't know anything about law at all back then. But that's the other thing you need to consider. So if they utter the anyone, whether it's your attorney, you know, your representative or theirs, tries to negotiate and say, well, if you plead guilty, we can guarantee you you'll be out in just a couple of years. You know, they're not basing that on any kind of fact that they know. A million things can happen to you, or you could do to other people while you're incarcerated. That could and will affect whether or not you know you're going to get paroled there's no way these people could know that it might have been self-defense it could have been anything it could have been a setup they don't know they don't they have nothing to do with once you're once you're out of that courtroom they have nothing to do with anything so never ever under any circumstances and i don't care what the charge is i don't care what the climate is that they say in society right now the climate is in society they hate these people who, who commit these kinds of crimes and society is going to demand justice, so they're going to give you three consecutive life. No. Whatever they tell you, ignore them. They do not have the slightest damn clue 
whether or not you will be found guilty because that's up to a jury and they haven't even picked the jury yet so how could they possibly begin to know that okay they haven't and you haven't you know it's it's a mutual thing they get to to you know question different jurors potential jurors you your guys get to to do the same thing and you weed them out you figure out nope i would i don't need this juror uh, you can have him or her dismissed and juror you're dismissed and blah 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 i don't need to get into all the court film details but never plead guilty because you lose all of your power and there's no guarantee of parole at all i don't care how even if you're a model person you know, even if you become a teacher while you're there and teach other inmates how to spell and this and that, it doesn't matter what you do, there is no guarantee, okay? And they'll tell you, well, because of your demeanor and because you're laid back and, and easygoing, you should have no problems once you plead guilty when you're, when you're incarcerated, and then you'll make parole again. Nobody knows whether or not you're going to make parole under any circumstances, just like they don't know whether or not a jury is going to convict or not. You know, they don't know. They don't know. And it's up to the judge after even the judge has sat there through all of the evidence and all that, that if you're found guilty, the judge passes the sentence, not the district attorney. They can make suggestions and recommendations for the court, but the court slash the judge can make any decision they want to. And it has nothing to do with anything that someone's telling you when they're trying to convince you to plead guilty. So again, if I could go through the whole process again, I wouldn't plead guilty. I may have ended up in Walpole or something terrible like that, but I wouldn't have plead guilty because there's nobody, including me, that can know how the trial is gonna go what gets kept in what gets kept out what's suppressed what da 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 and then what all the emotions and thoughts going through a juror's mind no one can know any of that certainly not without even doing jury selection which only happens if you don't plead guilty and decide to proceed to, to trial i would highly recommend everybody do this and if you do <laughs> The course will be bogged down into nothingness and what will happen what will happen is less innocent people will be convicted and more more guilty people will because the law enforcement right from the police all the way up to the courts will have to actually do their damn jobs they're gonna they're not gonna be able to just plant evidence or pretend things or switch victim statements into something else when they're not supposed to or all the crap they put me through or anyone else they can't do that anymore because now they know that 99.9% .9 of the time or maybe 98 or 95% this person's going to want to go to trial no matter what we say or what happened this guy got a bug in his ear and he suddenly decided nope no I'm not going to plead guilty I want to go to a trial now I'm not saying that trials trials are an easy thing to go through they're not they're very emotional on both sides of the aisle and victims and witnesses and then you have professional people that come in you know as professional witnesses for either the prosecution or the defense so on and so forth but it is worth it in the end as opposed to saying I'm guilty even if you're not now another thing why do people plead guilty pretty much everything I just told you is the reason it does not have to do with whether or not they are guilty or innocent of any of the indictments or charges okay it's got nothing to do with that 
It has everything to do with they are scared, they are being told that they might be looking at some serious time and, and, and what they do to people like you in this prison or what the, whatever the hell their scare tactics are. That's usually the reason why most people, regardless of their criminal history, regardless of how tough they are on the street, regardless of whether they were a school teacher or whether they were the worst freaking uh, drug, drug addict or drug dealer in, in the town, People plead guilty because they are advised to do so by their attorneys, whether court-appointed or not. And it's mostly because they want to, the other guy wants to avoid, you know, the costly expenses. Make them pay. Make them pay for every single little bit. Every single thing. Everything. That's why people plead guilty. Not because they're guilty but because they're compelled to do so, which is completely wrong, but that's what happens. And remember, no matter what deal is made with the district attorney's office, if you plead guilty, it is up to the judge to make that decision as to whether or not you're going to serve this much, that much, or whatever. The judge sentences, not those guys. They have no idea, and they have no idea about the outcome of a trial. Don't plead guilty. Here's another thing that I would like to mention to you. I didn't mention it earlier. When I was arrested and I was brought to the police station, I don't know where the female officer went, but the male officer had me come into a room. He closed and locked the door, drew the shades. Now keep in mind, it's nighttime now. Or I shouldn't say keep in mind as if I had already told you, but it's nighttime. There's nobody else out in the offices out there. So he has me empty out my pockets, pulls out my FID card and goes, oh, you're never going to need that again. And like he knew something I didn't know. Yeah, how the hell does he know that it's not going to go to trial and I'm not going to win? Because he knows how this game is played. He knows that anyone and everyone in my situation is given a horror story and then they plead guilty. He knows that. But what he did next was wrong. And I'm going to tell you, his name is Thomas Kelly. He's a sergeant at Springfield Police Department. That <laughs> mother effer, after I emptied everything out, and I still had my cuffs on, well, after he emptied everything out of my pockets, I still had the cuffs on, and he says, oh, don't worry, I'm not going to hit you until I take off the cuffs. Cuffs. Quote, unquote. I mean, that's what he said to me. And man of his word, he took off the cuffs, put them on the table, and he punches me in the chest. And he starts... Ham slamming his 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 uh, hand on the side of my face. And he says beating me up. The only thing that stopped him was the fact that I'm a freaking genius. That's what stopped him, because he he coiled his hand back, his fist back, and was about to hit me again. And I said I wouldn't do that if I were you. And he says why? I says because I have a heart murmur. You hit me the wrong way, and I dropped dead right here. That was the end of that beating, because he wasn't going to have that. So, I hope you're happy with yourself, Sergeant. The secret is now out, and I know that if you did it to me, there's no question in my mind that you've done it to other people, and that you probably even taught your own subordinates to do the same. Although, I can't swear to that, because I don't know what you teach them, but I know what you did. And if a person does that to one person, there's no question that he's going to treat them the same way. There's a saying 
that I got from Mission Impossible 3. And I mentioned it at the beginning of another podcast. It goes something like, you can always tell the character of a person by how they treat those they don't need to treat well. And this was a perfect prime example of exactly what I'm talking about. There was no reason to do that. I'm already arrested. I'm already in custody. You've already got me at the police station. What's the purpose of doing that? I mean, first of all, you have no idea if I'm guilty or innocent. Okay? You're going by the word of, of, of a 13-year-old kid, a gay 13-year-old kid. You never even bother to question anybody about anything, and yet you just assume I'm guilty. That's the re- probably the, that's the reason, in my, in my opinion, that's probably the reason that they never even bothered to investigate because it was a slam dunk. They were gonna pigeonhole me into that little thing that I told you about before, the grooming and all this other crap, and it was all lies. It would have required me to have started the minute I met Richard. It would have required me to start right then, not over a year later. But if it was a year later, then I wouldn't fit their little cookie cutter of you first meet the person, you get their confidence, and then go on to the you know, next phase. It wouldn't have matched it. And they knew it didn't match it. There was no reason for this. No reason for this at all. And certainly no reason for that bastard to have laid one single hand on me or anybody else. And this guy is still working at the Springfield Police Department. One last thing I want to mention in this cast, and that is this. Not long after I was released, I was being seen by a mandatory sex offender therapist um, by the name of Bob, and he saw immediately what my issues really were, and uh, he contacted a friend of his at Social Security and had him put my name at the top of the list for SSI disability. and. I got SSI disability and I've been on it ever since. I'm still on it now. And uh, also, also, again, several years afterwards, um, I decided to uh, go ahead and try to take this situation to court. The fact that I had spent eight years in prison for something I didn't even do and then was compelled uh, to plead out again. So I contacted an attorney and he sa- said that based on what I've told him um, that and what I sent him um, that I had a good case. And then mysteriously he dropped the case. I know what happened and I'll explain in a moment. So then not long after that I found an attorney in Boston same thing, explained everything, brought it down there, went all the way to Boston, brought it down there, only to have him say that he thought the case was too complicated and didn't want to take the case. But the thing you need to carry away from this is that both lawyers said that the case had merit, that I had a good case as far as wrongful incarceration and some other you know, violations of my constitutional rights and things like that. So when he also refused to take my case, I realized what had happened. 
You see, the common practice in law is when you are, have a have a client um, that you're not so sure about, what you can do is you can actually contact, find and con. If you're an attorney, you can find and contact the attorney that ha handled the, you know, the the person's case, and you can talk to them candidly. And I'm sure that when he contacted Charles, I'm sure he had nothing good to say about me and that I was a difficult client. Yeah, I'm a difficult client when you're being an idiot and standing up in court trying to screw me over and, oh, never mind that, way back when you said the case had no merit. You know, oops, I'm sorry, I must be a really, really trouble client. But that's all they need to hear. And then they don't take the case because they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to be, have somebody calling the, the board of bar overseers on them. You know, so, you know, that that's that situation. So that's why that happens. That's why that happens. But the bottom line still remains that both attorneys said that my case had merit. I'm just going to use that word in this case. They didn't actually say merit, but they said that I had a good case. This is what they told me over the phone when I explained it to them. And I didn't lie or embellish or anything like that. I was very straightforward. And in some cases, I was actually reading from the documents and, uh, and some of my briefs and motions. So that's what you need to take away from this. The fact that two separate attorneys, two separate civil litigation attorneys said that I had a case after I presented to them my story and my evidence. They just didn't want to take it is all because they didn't want to have to deal with all the baloney that they felt might ensue. So, you know, also you have to remember that I proved my alibis, that I proved, had witnesses, that I had all of these things, and the court was well aware of it, and yet they still insisted that I plead guilty again because they didn't want to get sued. Well, here's the funny part about the lawsuit. A little something you can learn about law maybe you might be in the same situation maybe not a criminal case or something like that but maybe something happened and then the last the statute of limitations ran out and that was it remember that was the reason why they added in addition to all those other things they added one more year to make sure that it was past the three-year statute of limitations for me to file a lawsuit what they weren't considering and what I wasn't considering, because I made arrangements when I got out for a job and everything else, um, they didn't think that the job was, they didn't know that the job was going to fall through. And it did. And it was by no fault of mine. But now that I was on SSI, I didn't have to really worry about a job. But the minute I was put on SSI while I was still on probation, told the statute of limitation that's t-o-l-l -L. it's tolling of the statute of limitations basically what the tolling of the statute of limitations is um, and you can look it up yourself i'm not going to give you a verbatim quote but it basically stops the statute of limitation it freezes it right there until such time that the person who wants to file a lawsuit is no longer incapacitated and well, I have mental health issues and I'm on SSI. That classifies me as incapacitated. So immediately there was a tolling of the statute of limitation, a stopping of the ta sta statute of limitation, which means at any point in time that I was either 
of a right mind or had a proper legal representation to represent me because I myself couldn't represent myself under that state, when that happens, then the statute of limitations begins again. Well, I started on, on disability while I was still on probation, while I was still under duress, while I was still under the auspices of the court. And that meant the tolling of the statute of limitations. And I am going to tell you right now that if I ever get enough money to afford a civil litigation attorney, I am going to file that lawsuit. And it will be a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Do I need to say that in this podcast? No, but I'm just saying it to let you know. Because maybe your mental health has caused you a situation where there's a tolling of the statute of limitations and you just didn't know it existed. Because the only people who really know this are people who study law or law students or are lawyers and, you know, paralegals. So on that mercenary note, I am going to end this podcast. I'm not sure whether you enjoyed it or not. I'm not really concerned as to whether you enjoyed it or not, but I certainly hope that it was informative. Um, This is why I tried not to use a script, because I wanted to make sure if I screw up words, if I do this or that. The only real editing that I did here was every time I dropped an F-bomb by accident, and then I had to go in there and find it and cut literally cut it before cut it after and then cut it out (laughs) and then push push everything together again so other than that i really don't edit this because i want it to be spontaneous i want you to hear my voice i want you to hear the consistencies in what i'm saying um throughout all of these podcasts uh if i make a mistake i don't want everybody to stand up and point ah liar liar no mistakes can be made but All of this was based on my life story or things that I've witnessed, just as I said uh, in in one of my other casts. I believe it was the About Me cast. Uh, But anyway, I explained, you know, that is the way I'm approaching it. I'm not going to sit here and try to talk out my butt about stuff that I don't know anything about. This is all stuff that I either experienced or witnessed myself. Not something I heard from heard about from somebody else so i will now end this podcast and okay i hope you found it enjoyable but most of all i hope you learned something from it i hope you learned something from it thank you very much for listening hope you continue listening to my other podcasts if you haven't already and i hope you'll tell others about it you can get the book that I've written called A Problem We Dare Dare Not Ignore, A Problem We Dare Not Ignore, and it's, uh, the subtitle is Sex Offense and Exploitation. You can buy that at lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. Then on the uh, the, uh, search bar, just type in A Problem We Dare Not Ignore, and then select the the drop-down menu, click Books, And then click the arrow button or whatever button tells you to click to go. And you'll see two versions of this book. One is a soft cover and one is an audio uh, file that you can, you know, pay for and download. So it's up to you if you want to do that. And then you'll get a better understanding of of everything that I've said here. Because there are things that are in this 
set of podcasts that are not in the book and that are in the book that are not in this set of podcasts. Um, so it's very advantageous for you to get both of those. It's even more advantageous if you want to know more about my life story than you have gotten from these podcasts to go to lulu.com again, L-U-L-U.com, and type in the search bar, just call me Foster, Foster is in quotes, and then drop down the menu, click books, and then click the button to go to that page, and you're going to find, again, a softcover book and a digital copy that you can purchase. Uh, the softcover book is a little bit expensive, but that's because it's about as thick as a Harry Potter book. As a matter of fact, in order for me to get it on Lulu.com, I actually had to cut it back a little bit. Um, but clearly the digital is, you know, it's digital and you can then watch it, uh, or watch it, you can listen to it on any device that you have. Um, so you shouldn't have any problems with that. So again, thank you for listening. Good day.